The scientific revolution starts now. I don't mind at all y'all framing me as a citizen scientist, and I'm very proud to be among some of your other guests, right? But I, I'm not a PhD, and you're going to have some people listening go, who the hell is this guy? And what I got going for me is 30 years in the subject and 1,200 citations in it, you know? So well, I actually think it's really, it's yeah. actually particularly interesting. Yeah. You don't come across uh, people who publish in Nature who aren't affiliated with, uh, you know, a pretty high-end institution in the first yep. place or have PhDs and so forth. So that's that's a heck of a story that I'd like to find out how you all even pulled that off. Um, yeah. But I'm a scientist makes good in big journals. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I, I mean, I saw Headlines that when it came out. I was That was the thing that jogged me in now that I think about it into even reading and getting into that. I'm, I'm really interested in the biblo- biblical archaeology in that period, the early, uh, the early Iron Age transition and all of that. We're actually just peeling open a bunch of conversations right now. We got on the books. Uh, well, that's Tell that. Alamam, if I'm getting you right. That's mm-hmm. the that's the Jordanian impact. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sorry, seasons I'm, there. That's fine. And then mixing the ice, thirteen thousand. But the 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 seventeen hundred BC event was the most significant deviation from studying the Younger Dryas that our team did, and that's right, a good right. story. And they said, okay, we're going to take this one on. We've got all the forensic skills from studying our other period, which we're going to continue to study, but we're going to have a sidecar where we go and look at this purported Sodom site. And it, it yielded some fruit. Yeah. And that, that was, I think that was the nature or the scientific reports that I, that I saw in in the journal nature. And I think that it legitimized the idea of impacts like that in general, because we had come across the younger driest impact previous to that. But it was always in context of, you know, there's this theory, yeah. And then with the with yeah. the silence with the silence that that follows, and yeah. I think that seeing there being an airburst hypothesis about Tel Al Hamam was suddenly a shift where it was like, okay, this is something that happens, and if it's something that happens, then there's no reason that it couldn't have happened previously and in other conditions and so i think that that's why shiloh links them in his mind because it's this opening of the possibility well it's like people think that that impacts are giant pieces of iron that leave craters all the time when there's a a much larger class of nuclear bombs yeah we had a they don't but they don't leave any radiation and would you know a nuclear bomb went off 100 years later hell not well, that's actually good to know. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> be so afraid of the, the without the with the radiation, you would. But yeah, there you go. You know, uh, highly energetic events minus the radiation. We actually had this scientist from Columbia, Dallas Abbott, come on. And oh yeah, did you have Dallas Abbott? All? Yeah, yeah. And Dallas makes you know she's really suffering because she's trying to basically say that these kind of airbursts are far more common than the big crater type oh, of yeah. impacts, and there's all of this evidence for them a lot of it is lost on the ocean floor but she's having a heck of a time trying to prosecute that case because you know the evidence isn't what people traditionally expect from impacts and well that was a handy reminder because i'm kind of wrapping up the first round of invites for my conference in other words what i can afford now if it takes off then i'll get some more but i got about five more spaces i need more phds and abbott was i 
I realized that a couple of weeks ago, I was like, Dallas Abbott. Oh, hell yeah. I'll have her come. And then I forgot about it. And you just reminded me. He said, literally after this show, I'm going to go send her an email and invite her to come to Greensboro in June. Yeah, do it. She's and got I a team of too. collaborators. Free too. tickets at a minimum. Oh, wow. Okay. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. And food and a table and all of that kind of stuff. Nice. Yeah. I'd yeah. love to pick your brain about organizing. We're trying to organize our first conference now. It's going to be a pretty, pretty small affair, but we're hoping to learn how to do it in the next few years and, and scale well, it up. Well, get ready. It might not be as small as you think. I don't know. <laughs> me last year, man. It was like, yeah. holy shit, people are interested in this. Yeah. We uh, have organized it in Austin for the Eclipse. And I think yeah. that that's... M- on yeah, one the hand, travel and like the hotels are all sopped up at the eclipse. We kind of didn't anticipate that. I mean, well. I anticipated okay, it. Maybe we did. <laughs> <laughs> but I think that it's going to keep it small because there's only so many people that want to bear the added expense of the eclipse. Oh, and yeah. so you can you can organize it on a different weekend, and it's like half the price. But there's going to be a subset of people that are coming to Austin for the eclipse, and so. Those are the people that we're going to catch because it's just not everybody. I'm totally fine with it being small the first time. I'm like, oh, let's yeah. figure out how this works. It's basically just us. We don't have any kind of Jamie or anything. So, you know, let's uh, let's learn what we don't know before we try well, to build this I'll thing Well, I'll tell up. you, I've had an absolute baptism by fire. Um, first of all, I put tickets on sale and they sold out for a June event by January 28th. Mm-hmm. And That's then... Incredible. We may, you know, so we got up to like 600 people and then Graham Hancock Ooh. dropped out in a crazy fit. And oh. then I had to refund $200,000 worth of tickets. Oh my, my God. Oh, oh yeah, man. And then it started building back. Huh. And now like these things happen, it was one of those things where you, I was old enough to know, well, this will probably be good in the long run, even though this is the worst day of my life. And, um, damn if it wasn't because now I'm not dependent on one person yeah you know yeah. you you want a multi-leg stool if you're doing something like this you don't want the who and then a whole bunch of <laughs> who who mentions the who anymore but whatever the <laughs> big band a whole bunch of little bands better to have medium bands smaller uh-huh. bands and have two, you know three or four big bands do it just i can i think of it just like a concert that mm-hmm. you're doing a music festival and the That's ideas smart. are the songs and that their genres are the general subject and discipline that you're talking about and you have stages and move them around and say, hey, let's go listen to, you know, Southern rock. Let's go listen to whatnot. It's where I'm trying to go with it. And just think of ideas as music. Is your conference essentially just a series of speakers or do you have workshop activities or posters? Or? Yeah, I'm just we, curious. We're going to have trying posters. To imagine this. Yeah. Okay. And we didn't last year, but we're, you know, uh, turning it up a big, big notch. And hopefully it'll accomplish it all. But we're going to split into two uh, tracks. First of all, we're going to shooting for a thousand people, and then we'll split Ooh. them into two tracks, five hundred each. I'm not sure how much interchange could be now. But to answer your question, we're going to have a third day that's not on the website yet. Well, actually, it references, but we hadn't opened the ticket yet. Where we're going to have the facilities, unbelievable. It's the largest conference center between Atlanta and DC. And they're old friends. I've known the owners of it my entire life. I'm from Greensboro, so they've rolled out the red carpet. They gave us all 250,000 square feet. We can do anything we want, and including a 5,000-person ballroom that they're going to shrink to 1,000. But mm. if it happens to go wild, and I've got you know, there's some possibilities, you can get bigger. And they've also, to answer your question, have these le- drop-down lectern lecture halls, you know, in the round where the professors down at the bottom 
They've got four of them, 200 people each. So on Monday, you're going to have classroom day and do a deep dive with Randall all day, right? And deep dive with Scott Walter. And people think the Templars aren't related to this, but they are. And we're going to teach them they are. And and then then my new buddy, Malcolm Bendall, which perhaps with you guys, you don't want to touch with a 10-foot fucking pole. I don't know who that is. I don't know. It sounds fun. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Malcolm, touch anything. Malcolm Bendall. Well, mark this moment in your minds. <laughs> <laughs> because you have just heard the name of the most fantastical fraud of recent decades or the dawning of a new age. Mm. Now, he has a, I was just listening to the, Oh gosh, I hope to have his name in my head. Y'all give me his name. The plasma <clears throat> scientist. Patrick Van the Reyes. Hydraulic Vin how do you say it? Van Reyes. Van Reyes. Patrick mm-hmm. Van Reyes. And I call it hydraulic plasma, but whatever. How you know, making plasmas in water, that's what Malcolm does. And he came forth. Randall Carlson dropped his name on the Joe Rogan show in October. This is probably valuable pre-talk if we want to have some, if, if you want to talk about it, but you might not want to touch it or you can put yourself anywhere you want. But Randall went on, Randall's known the guy for eight years. He told me about him three years ago. I said, hey, I'm already heavily invested time and now money with a cold fusion company that doesn't have a website whose biggest investor is Lauren Jobs, the wealthiest woman in the world. This is a serious operation. So. Randall comes forth with this guy, says he's broken physics. I told him three years ago, I said, hey, man, I've got a company that can look this stuff over, blah, blah, blah. Then he drops his name. He wasn't supposed to. He's supposed to tease his coming out to the world because he's lived on an island in the Maldives. And I know this for a fucking fact, which blew my mind. I proved it to myself. Lived alone on an island in the Maldives writing his physics notes. And those were all prepared to be published, and Randall was supposed to go on and tease that he wanted to bring him on, and then he dropped his name, and he'd been a secret person for a decade. And he said his name is Malcolm Bendall, and he lives on an island in the Maldives. After which, the president of the Maldives picked up the phone, called Malcolm, and said, we can keep you quiet, buddy, but we can't keep you loud. You got to go. So Malcolm had to pick up. He came to Atlanta, went to his outer, actually. They mind-melded geometry took the final stages of understanding for how it worked. Randall was tremendously helpful, even though he's not a physics guy. It's all geometry. And they completed the notes. He published them at stripefoundation.org. And then they went on Rogan. And I drove down to Rogan with them, with Malcolm, rented a big Cadillac, and we had fun and made a road trip out of it. Went from Atlanta down to Austin to film with Rogan. He took Bendall on, and then he didn't show the program. Mm. It's the no-show Joe show. Mm. Yeah, I guess he does a lot of that. I, 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 hear I that. haven't I hear... heard much more of it. He's because he's had to address it since it was a minor internet Joe thing for a while. It's like, where the fuck is Randall in the inventor? We were all excited. Randall said the inventor had changed the, you know, completely transformed humanity with his invention. Where is it, Joe? Where is it? And I can't blame Joe. And this is kind of a long, I'm not going to tell it long, but I can't blame Joe because these things have commercial implications. And if you go and suggest to 50 million people that the whole economy is going to change and it's all around this man that Joe had never met before, he could walk off out of the studio and offer a penny stock the next day. 
and embarrass the hell out of Joe and Joe's put his audience because they're going to be a certain number of gullible people in there. Whereas if you have Bob Lazar on, yes, it's a wild claim, but he ain't going to really go soak his guests for it. Mm-hmm. So Jamie and Joe, and there were some sketchy looking things about Malcolm that have now kind of disappeared from the internet. And I think I know why, but, um, so I met this crazy man and first of all, I got in the car with him for two days, get, get down there. And he told the absolute craziest series of international intrigue physics tales I've ever heard in my life. I mean, it was just jaw dropping. And I figured he would go in and talk about, so did Randall talk about the technology, but that's not Malcolm. He went on there and said to Rogan, everything he had told us in the car. And there was shit in the car that scared me. Like we've got, you're in the bathroom with one of the other guys in the car. We're like, is this shit true, man? Are we safe with this guy? I mean, and he goes on Rogan, says it all. And Rogan for about 40 minutes was skeptical and giving him a hard time and kind of in Spotify mode. And then Joe fell into it, man. Mm -hmm. And then it became the greatest podcast of all time. And it will air one day. And I mean, Joe does the bug out eyes, you know, looking at Malcolm and, but Malcolm has a whole new, well, I won't say new, but he has a bubble cavitation retrofit to an internal combustion engine. And it is a waste to energy device. And what it does is, uh, removes all the emissions it drops down to zero and you maintain atmospheric um oxygen as incredible as that sounds and even though it wasn't designed to do it it does run 30 percent longer up to 70 actually we've seen but it's not designed to do that the cia told malcolm we want all the emissions gone this was like a decade ago so he said well i can make it run forever and i can take us to the stars and he said nope malcolm we said we want all the emissions gone but, but, but no, Malcolm. And he said, okay, give me four months. He went off, came back and took the greater principles and manifested them in this rinky dink machine that now we're taking all over the world. And we took it to Tesla tech in Albuquerque and demonstrated it publicly, created a minor, you know, there's plenty of shit out there on it. And then we took it to Zurich a few weeks ago and ran it for a German Swiss uh conference Tesla Tech was obviously a bunch of old Tesla geeks you know old aerospace guys and dark project guys walking around in Hawaii shirts and flip-flops and i mean literally average age of 70 this conference has been going on for 50 years they crowned Malcolm their king of zero point energy basically what's this machine look like it looks like a power washer you can build the whole thing from Lowe's for 1500 bucks, but one part has to be welded and it takes a pretty damn skilled welder. You want to get it right, but that part has no moving parts and that's called the thunderstorm generator. And what it is, is emulating nature and bringing plasmoid power and creating millions and millions of nanobubble plasmoids, as y'all are familiar with, feeds it into a UV light. That tunes it. So you got the bubbler, the light, then it, uh, there are thousands of pictures on it, but uh, or I could show you one. Then it feeds it into the thunderstorm generator and it splits it in a Hilsch-Vorsch kind of way. And you end up, one part of it gets up to 700 C and the other part gets to minus 50 and shit. I mean, hot and cold. 
And then they redirect that, the exhaust back into the machine. Kind of, I'm not a mechanical guy. I'm not a physics guy. I can fake geology. I can fake ancient history, all that shit. But all of a sudden I've had all this dropped on me. I'm like, Oh God, particularly not a mechanic. I can't change my oil or any of that stuff, but this thing, and then you hold up, we've had it up to six separate exhaust analyzers on it. I mean, this thing I've sat with exhaust analyzer for hours. Cause that's the only thing I'm qualified to do in the lab. I'll hold it. So the, the cameras can see it correctly. So we saw it work in Albuquerque. I took the machine to some friends here in Raleigh. There's one there. We took one to Zurich, showed it there. The Germans took that one. They're testing it successfully. Now we're going to India on Monday, and we're going to a 75,000-person minimum conference called Smart Tech India. And the Indian government is welcoming us with open arms. I'm in touch with General, I mean, Admiral Sinha, who flew over to Raleigh when we had it here. They want to drop it in their aircraft carriers, and they're taking us to their DARPA lab. Well, damn. It's getting really weird. But, you know, the truth of the thing is, you're like, well, is this true? Everybody starts off with troop as the wall, right? And you cut your doubt by half. Half, 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 half. You never, you know, I can't even say. It's too wild. It's going to have to play out. It's, yeah, I run into that sometimes where it's like there's something gets put down in front of me and yeah. I can't evaluate it. I, I, it. Like it looks good. It's promising. It sounds good. It holds together. But the well, real technology, test, it just comes down to the truth is in the implementation. Right? Yeah, like does it it's work? like when it goes in that aircraft well, here's carrier. the fun part is that like I said, you can build it. So when we demo it, you don't want to drag around some Honda generator. You can buy them anywhere, right? And the bubbler, key part there, you buy at PetSmart, the air diffuser. So I bought I bought three of them. They're only nine bucks. And then you've got some, you know, uh, uh, plastic clear tube and all, all this stuff. Oh, you're part of a plunger. You got to go take apart a plunger and cut the plungy part out. So all that stuff can be bought locally. And then you just bring the thunderstorm generator. Mm. And that's what happened in, in he at Malcolm. And you're always suspicious when the inventor brings the secret part. But the part has no moving parts and he brings it and then you build it around it. And then unlike other frauds, and I know of some, there isn't some line you can't cross or then vendor says, don't touch that. Or we're not prepared to reveal this. Uh-uh, uh-uh. Everybody can touch it. Everybody, people making modifications while he's out, to, out of the room and we built it, unbuilt it, rebuilt it, unbuilt it. And these are some of the, the mechanic working on it was the mechanic for the SR-71 fucking Blackbird, man. And his helper was the a guy who fabbed stuff for the space station. I mean, these guys are not easily fooled. And we spent 14 hours a day for two weeks testing it. And there's no emissions. But I can't get y'all. Y'all have a lot at stake with physics. So, however, if you want me to bring this stuff in, because no one's going to believe it off the bat, first of all. Well, I uh, think they, the liquid plasma approach to fusion is actually really promising. It's, it really dovetails nicely with with the way that we're starting to think about the sun and the material composition of the sun as well because you know these like gaseous approaches to fusion it's funny because the headlines come out every year or so and they're like huge yep. gains made in fusion yep. and you like really start to read the papers and you're like wait a second like this is 
you guys haven't actually done any. I mean, you've done like these minor gains, but the system is consuming way more energy than this actual reaction. And oh my God! I mean, and, it's, and, 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 it's, and, uh, it and so it's not pencil out. The most expensive science project on Earth doesn't even begin to pencil out. And you're like, why are they doing this? It's I think strange, that they're yeah. doing it because they need to. And there's okay, so this is actually really interesting. Well, I, I think it comes right from the scientific understanding of the sun. Maybe. Yeah. That's partially true, but I also, so I'm reading this biography of Robert Moses right now, who is the mm -hmm. parks director in New York. New York City guy. Mm -hmm. And he had this really interesting strategy because he wanted to build something that was just unbelievably complex. He wanted yeah. to build all these highways across Long Island, then he wanted to remake New York, and it was at a time, and it still is, that it's absolutely impossible to get anything done in the government. Mm -hmm. It's basically unheard of that somebody shows up and starts to get shit done. And what Moses did is he realized that he could leverage the government's reluctance to give on projects or to change direction on projects once enough money had been dumped into them and started. Mm -hmm. And so what he would do is he would drive all these wedges into projects where he was like, mm -hmm. I want to build this highway. And so mm -hmm. he would spend some portion of the money grading the highway. Mm -hmm. And then he would spend another portion of the money grading another highway. And so by mm -hmm. the time that the terms changed... He already had all these projects started. People were really interested in them. The government didn't want to give him more money because he had already spent all the money that he said he was going to need for and it. And you keep digging the hole. But he, and, and the government's yeah. basically like caught with its pants down because the people are like, well, we want parks. What mm -hmm. the hell? Like He's saying that you won't give him the money to finish the roads to the parks. I've had and that biography recommended to me. I want to read that. I've always wanted to read that. It's over. really good. Yeah, but I think that this is the exact... years old, isn't it? Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. He yeah. wrote it. He wrote it while a lot of the people who were involved were still living. And so I think that it was mm -hmm. like 65 or something. But it's the same thing with physics. I think that these things have been so expensive and they have built such an effective narrative around them that for the government to be like, okay, guys, so there was this thing that we knew about in the mm -hmm. 60s. And since then, we've spent billions and billions of dollars on something that doesn't work. We're just going to change direction now. Is Beyond the pale. It's the same sort of embarrassment that they would experience if they were to just leave all those highway projects unfinished. It's the exact same thing. Excellent insight. I love that. And I don't know, man. One problem with, I'm not a very woo guy for being like deep, deep, deep into heretical science and stuff and friends with all these crazy people. But I've become much more conspiratorial in the last couple of years. Despite, <laughs> I, mean, I just have seen too much, man, and it all fits. And I think that they absolutely have the tech that Malcolm had. First of all, he says they, I mean, he gave it to them if he's right, but they're all sorts. I think the whole hot fusion thing is a total cover, exactly just an employment game. And, and they have this stuff. And they don't know what to do with it because it fell in the secret weapon category. Mm. And then they couldn't give it to us because that would undermine the secret weapon. And there may be good reasons to keep this shit secret, but it's over now. And it's just like UFOs. That's what Malcolm says. He says they have greenlighted him. And when he lists who greenlighted him, this is an interesting, an interesting CC list um, of global organizations. 
Pardon the interruption, dear listeners, but we must ask you for a favor. If you like what the Demystify Psy podcast does, consider coming over to our Patreon. It is at patreon.com slash demystifypsy, and there you can contribute a couple dollars a month to help us keep the ship running and allow us to continue our investigations into the most interesting ideas that are out there about nature, humans, history, the future, technology, economics, all of the things that we do on the podcast. In return for your donation, you get both of our episodes for the week early, you get to join our fantastic patron chat that meets weekly on Sunday mornings to talk about everything that is interesting in the world and the direction that the podcast should take. And you get to have the satisfaction of contributing to something that you think is important in the world. If you can't contribute right now, that is totally fine. We understand. I have been in that boat for many, many years. But what you can do without spending a single penny is come to our Discord, come to our Facebook, come to our Twitter, come to our Instagram, like, comment, and subscribe, because by helping us with the algorithm, you help us grow in a really super passive way. And if you've already joined the Patreon, just do all that other stuff too. For now, back to the conversation. So they are no longer going to suppress it. It used to be that they'd go find the guy in the Midwest who came upon it and was doing it in his garage and they'd ruin his life. Or they would take Tesla's paper because Malcolm is a direct, Malcolm gives all the credit to Tesla Hmm. and about another dozen guys in the 20th century. Most of people you haven't heard of, but Oppenheimer was Oppenheimer had it. Tesla had it. Ken shoulders had it. Winston Bostick had it. Stanley Meyer, the guy with the damn dune buggy that ran on water had it. And you know how he ended? He was at a Cracker Barrel having a business meeting with two Belgian investors, took a sip of his cranberry, shot up from the table, ran for the door, screamed, I've been poisoned, and dropped dead. Yikes. So there have been some weird things have happened over the 20th century on this. Then the internet comes out. I don't know why they gave it to us, but just like with UFOs, it, it they can't play whack-a-mole anymore. It's just over and they're good guys and bad guys on the other side. Right. And the good guys are ascendant now. And the compromise is, if you will, that we're not going to disclose anything. We're not going to have a press conference, with the department of energy and say that we've had cold fusion since 59 or whatever. Right. They're just not going to do that. And they're not going to keep it secret anymore. So what's the compromise is you let the next guy pop that pops up, just let it go. And don't mess with us. And that's why we're not getting messed with. Now, it's all being supposedly followed and tracked and all of that we're being listened to right now. Um, Seems like the energy industry is would be the biggest hurdle. Like my my very shallow experience dealing with the energy sector, like I worked in this lab in grad school where we were developing these little evaporation engines. Yeah. And we were really excited to take them out and try to get them implemented, you know, infrastructurally amongst different municipalities on the West Coast. And we were basically told, hey, we like what we're doing right now. We don't really care about the efficiency gains. We got a good business going here. so cynical. And so when I think about something like cheap fusion power, I'm like, my God, like who... The energy sector is one of the most... I I think they're actually probably the biggest funded government uh, sector as, as far as subsidies go maybe next to defense or something, but, but like, good luck getting those people to let go of their, you know, well, this will come up from the bottom up. If it all be true, because it is so inexpensive and easy to make. And Malcolm is essentially open sourced. All of the plans are on the web. The first implementation will be open sourced. And then the improvements will be patented. 
even though there seems to be some patentability of the first implementation anyway, but just put that aside, people are, are making them around the world right now. We're have, we got 25 being made and we're distributing them so that people can go test them. So if this thing is like really as cheap as, as you know, a freaking dishwasher or whatever, could we yeah. imagine a world, does everybody have one of these in their house in the future or, or are municipalities grabbing these up or what's going on? What's uh, the... Well, we don't know. We don't know how it's going to play out, but you here's the thing the physics that he has been privy to by revelation according to malcolm um but i think all ideas are by revelation honestly yes, that's right yes, exactly. a I, that's a good comment and that's kind of what i think about what he says when he was 14 but and i know god our stuff sounds so crazy but i could go on forever about why i don't think it is now but the his physics the principles of it can do all sorts of wonderful wonderful things the retrofit engine is just a parlor trick of his to just hey here's how simple this stuff is and here's the neat stuff you can do with it it's doubtful although possible that garage mechanics around the world are going to start retrofitting cars he's already done one he's got a ford futura in australia that's hooked up oh and by the way the, the engine I'm talking about, and I'll have to show you a picture in a minute, but the implementation with the Thunderstorm generator, I carried it. My wife and I took one that was sent to us from Hawaii. The guy fabbed it in Hawaii, sent it here in Project Pineapple. We took it to Zurich. Okay. So, and I've got two more pineapples coming tomorrow that I'm going to take to India. So you can move them around. There's one hooked up to the grid in London that you have to move the key part around with a crane. It is huge. They've spent millions building it. <laughs> it is hooked to the grid on a methane extraction landfill, and they can exceed their inside the M25 carbon monoxide cap, which is the controlling cap. Surprisingly, you think it'd be carbon dioxide, but the thing that, that everybody has to that pushes down the efficiency or whatever you want to do with your factory inside the M25 in London is your um, uh, CO cap. So with an emissionless generator they can use all the methane they care to which is approximately four times more than their permit allows but as long as you ain't breaking the permit they can go max out and use all that so it's going to be like a teller it's a great way to monetize this technology because it's not immediately obvious how you monetize it but they actually found right there in london a way that with no emissions you can print money so that thing it's got one regulatory hurdle now, but we had it hooked up in September and October, and it was actually contributing to the grid, but it wasn't under the contract where our guys could make money. And now they need to change something. It's a long story. It's in a regulatory hole right now, but I visited it in London two weeks ago. I know it fucking works. There's no way that is all staged to raise money. No one has asked me for any money. <laughs> I have spent 60 days with Malcolm Bendall, and he has yet to ask me for a dime. I did buy him a sweatshirt, and his all his stuff got stolen at the hotel, including the notebook. <laughs> well, there you go. It starts with a sweater. It ends with a million dollars. Oh, yeah. Yeah, no, it's the whole thing. It's, it's bathos. You know it's a very long, is? long, long con. Bathos? It, yeah, bathos. It's a word I, you know, I didn't know what the hell it meant, but I came across. I said, that's what we're, this is a bathotic adventure. Bathos is the sublime mixed with the ridiculous. 
Mm. So it turns out when you make erroneous Bosch, yeah. when you, yeah, the, the, yeah, you're still like Malcolm's favorite thing is chocolate ice cream. So I always get him chocolate ice cream. <laughs> you know what I mean? So you're sitting there. One of the big things with the inventor, you know, if you're not talking plasma physics is making sure that he has some fucking tri- chocolate ice cream. Not that he pitches a fit, but he gets kind of surly or, you know, he gets sad if he don't get his ice cream. So <laughs> yeah, but, but he doesn't care about money. He's wearing the same sweatshirt. I bought him in Moorhead City. We went to the beach for four days in September. Actually rode out a tropical storm, which is kind of rotating vortices of hot and cold air that popped up out of nowhere in the Atlantic and came directly over my home. And so we rode out the storm, 70 mile an hour winds. It's wild. And I had a mind. Here's where all the info is, guys. And I'll leave you with this and we'll shut up about it. There are two, three places that are covering it in great form now. Do y'all know of Bob Grinier? Mm-hmm. Cold fusion guy. Okay, take that green Y-E-R, and that's the Martin Fleischman Memorial Project, the open Uh, source cold fusion thing that he's been running for officially for eight years now. And Grenier's seen it all, and he's covering it in absolute detail now, is all the way in, is doing SEM of the inside of the sphere. And then the outside of the inner sphere, there are three spheres in both ends of the thing. And they have sacred geometry. So he's, they've cracked it open. It's full of amorphous carbon. It, some of it appears to be diamond. We're getting the EDS done, but it's transmuting elements within the thing. There are plasmoids. There are 128 million witness marks for plasmoid. What is that? Embedded in the stainless steel where you can literally see the white hole in the black hole. You know, you, 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 I didn't find the yin yangs on that one. He does that on plates, but the same, you find these, techn- <laughs> listen, man, it's, it's crazy. It's transmuting elements in there. What it's doing is taking the carbon products of the admissions, turning them back into oxygen and leaving behind a little present, a little crust of diamonds. <laughs> And that's all on SEM. Bob's putting out a video every few hours on it. It's all being done live. So that's one stop. The other stop is so Bob's the hands-on guy. Bob doesn't talk or do anything that he doesn't see, touch, or, you know, see, touch, or make. Then on the intellectual side, it's being covered by a math genius in the outback, Jordan Collin. And he's a husband-wife team, though she don't go camera much, and they're out there in the outback. He's a math genius and a follower of Marco Roden in Vortex Mathematics, which is a deep hole. Marco's math geniuses and Malcolm discovered each other six months ago. They were both tremendously gratified because he manifested their math and they provided the math for his manifestation. So the math people, including Keon Willman, who just graduated with honors, Oxford mathematician, who's Malcolm's kind of helper now, um, and all these other math guys, Dr. Robert Herlick of City University, New York, with 85,000 math citations. He's 85 years old, Hebrew guy, has a beard down to his chest. He came to Raleigh. He saw it. But those guys are all down with it. What am I saying here? Where am I running with this? That, oh. Jordan, his channel is called Alchemical Science, and he explains it all mathematically. And I highly recommend the one where he shows a chessboard on the thumbnail. That's where I had my, oh, I get it now. Oh, my God. 
math can't do that. There is a God. (laughs) Yeah, there's clearly a creator here. And uh, that's Jordan Collins, Alchemical Science. And then third, my dear friend and the hostess of the Cosmic Summit 2023 and 2024, comedian in social influencer, Johanna James from London, England, the beautiful Johanna James. I took Johanna to go see the thing. And she's just a hoot, man. She's like, uh, uh, what do you call it? Get the guy's name. Uh, I forget the comedian's name, but she's like him. She does funny science videos about ancient history and stuff. And I said, she did me a big right last year and helped save me when Graham dropped out. So I figured if I was going to deal anybody in on this to come do some videos and whatnot, that it'd be Johanna. So I went to London. We went to the dark site where we had the test models and stuff. She and uh, she filmed all this stuff. She did a 23 minute video last week that is magnificent, that explains it all to children or physicists. She just did an incredible job. She's just about to do another follow up and she's in with the SEM. Well, actually, she's doing it with this 400 mag thing, but they're looking at all the crystals on the inside of the thing. So, those three channels are our horses. And I just hope I didn't get her in trouble. And it's a fraud because she's my buddy. <laughs> yeah, there's always that. There's always that little chance that something's going on you don't know about. I'm going to show you one picture of this thing, and let's get. We are not. We're not being recorded, are we? Yeah, we've been recording since the beginning. Oh shit! But y'all edit, don't you? As little as humanly possible. Well, I've been making references like we were speaking privately. I hope that doesn't sound awkward to the audience. <laughs> no, I no, think that it's going to be This is totally exactly fun. what we love. To okay. Do. I actually think it's really. Does Malcolm do podcasts, or is he kind of trying to? He did stay out of the me, public. But I've still gotten the can, mm. and it had eight cameras though, because of this whatever. It, it he, sounds like a nightmare to edit. You, yeah, you you need to um, you need to interview Malcolm. Yeah, we'd love to talk I'm to him because it's not it's, sure where he would be on it right now. There's a whole bunch. Like if you go look at Bob Grinier's videos, he's talking all the time, so he's not secret. But I'm not sure. I'll test him on that. Would he go on a podcast right now? Obviously, he went on Joe Rogan, right? Know what I mean? So Mal- we could just recreate the Joe Rogan podcast. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you should. It yeah, would be, be, be a very, very popular thing with y'all if you can stomach the 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 wildness of Malcolm. That sounds fun. Yeah, he has deep. It has spiritual dimensions to it that I'd just rather not be there. You just want it to be physics, but it is what it is. And he's yeah, I, I'm not afraid of any ideas. I mean, as long as Good. people have well-developed ideas, you know, it, 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 as long as they're coherent, then it's going to make for an interesting discussion. I mean, and I'm not saying that... about having three hours of, t- of talking to somebody that you can really tell yeah. how the ideas fit together and see where the gaps are and see where the things I mean, yeah, come people together, come on the show sometimes and like, I'm not buying their ideas by the end of the podcast. That's okay. Yeah. You know, it's like, but I think that the audience also is intelligent enough to make up their own mind. You know, I try not to, as, hey, as little as I can, I try not to just give people a hard time, but you know, let them hang well, themselves. This be an interesting project for y'all to look into. It's kind yeah, of definitely. Of, it's I, I pulled up his website up while we were talking. Damn alley. And, and here's the key. When y'all were talking to, um, Salvador Pius, right? Mm-hmm. He said, and y'all had one little brief thing, Mike, you and he, where you discussed the consciousness of plasmoids. Robert Temple, Professor Temple, 
a scholar in, in England, just wrote a book called uh, A New Science of Heaven. I didn't know of this book. I'm over there visiting Malcolm in London. Turns out megalithomania, one of conference like mine's going on, and the guy invited me to come over to it. So I went out to megalithomania, and I'm like, hell yeah, I'll get to see Robert Temple speak. And I, I wanted him to introduce Chandra Wickramasinghe at CS24 because somebody needs to tee Chandra up. I don't want Chandra to have to get up there, explain panspermia, and then get deep and have to cram all that into an hour. So Robert's going to introduce him remotely. Chandra's going to be in person. So I want to talk to him about that. I had no idea. I'm over there on a plasma mission. Robert's a panspermia buddy. And he gets up and gives his presentation at Megalithomania, and it's all based on his new book, which I was unaware of, and it's all about plasma. And his central contention is that it's sentient. I actually now, reached out to Robert uh, maybe two months ago through his publishing company, but I never heard back from him. And so, so we'd love you're to aware talk to of that book. Mm-hmm. Wonderful. How many people be aware of that book? I love this podcast. We have uh, our audience is really good at bringing us stuff. And yeah. some people are hard, like Temple's a hard guy to get a hold of. His email address is. isn't available anywhere. His phone number is not listed. Like, the other day, I found I, I really want to talk to John Clauser about his experiments on Bell's inequality. Yeah, and his literally his address and phone number is on the internet, and so I just yeah. called him. Yeah, but that's unbelievably rare in context of the people that we want to find. Well, and so I Temple, a- I had to reach out to him through his publishing company, and the publishing company was like, "Thank you for your email. We will oh, yeah. respond." I mean, as far as like super crazy woo out there ideas, I think that looking for signs of life where we don't expect them is actually a really interesting proposal, especially because the origins of life research doesn't seem to have an answer for what comes right before life. You know, there's, well, we always speculated on what about non-organic life and people say, right. well, can, you know, minerals be conscious or something. And you're always looking for little blobs of cells and what, well, no, maybe it's just dust, which is plasma, you know, the Kordaleski clouds and that they just operate as big sentient computers and that they're neural networks, just like, I mean, everything works on a fractal scale that obviously as above, so below that. Well, organized electrical activity is kind of the hallmark of the brain. Galaxies. There's probably a way that the galaxy is a brain. I mean, it seems possible at least I I, I have no mechanism or like wiring diagram for that, but we, we know the hallmark of conscious entities is that they have these really highly patterned electrical systems, right? That are exactly. in this analog resonance circuits with one another. And yeah, I don't know. Have you read a, did you ever read Stapledon's Star Maker by chance? No. Oh man, you got to read at least like the first chapter of that book. Oh, I it's, will. I always take books. Absolutely stunning. Good about Pretty that. old book, but, and it's basically this poet, it's right? basically this guy who lies down on a hill and has this dream yeah. that the stars are awake basically and they're living these lives out on these really long time scales and yeah it just i mean it's complete fiction poetic fiction but it yeah. really really gets your scientific brain thinking in a new way well i've got one of those lines that i gotta read before and i'm not much of a it's fiction right it it is but but it's got a forward by freeman dyson it's oh, it's yeah. like yeah, fiction yeah, yeah. in the right it's direction definitely fiction but so many good s- so many good ideas have come from sci-fi too. Well, well, here here's a good example of that: the Black Crowd by Fred Hoyle. Right, he wrote that in 1958 after he, you know, taught us a lot about the sun, and 
is it 50? Maybe it's uh, 50, no, 57, 57. Yeah, yeah, 57. He wrote that book because he couldn't get the ideas published and he had this huge mainstream, you know, he was the Carl Sagan of Europe, you know, England and, and super popular, had a BBC show, but he couldn't get his most astounding insights into the journals or at least didn't want to go that way. So he wrote the black cloud and the black cloud, which I have not read yet, but now with the Robert Temple stuff, I've just got to get to it postulated that there were living entities, nebulous entities of plasma electrical phenomena with dust, mm. you know, have that, you, uh, smart dust. <laughs> <laughs> I love the idea of smart dust floating around. Yeah. It's, uh, you, do you know Thomas Gold? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I this is basically oil guy. Abiotic oil guy, but also uh, he's got his a lot fingers of and lots yeah, of pies. Yeah. Inert material consciousness guy, right? Mm. His uh, deep hot biosphere theory is basically exactly what it sounds like Robert Temple is writing, which is that you can have the organization of what we would consider to be inanimate stuff, yeah, in such a complex way that perhaps even under our feet. The planet is conscious. The stars are conscious. And he was he was writing about this in the 70s and 80s. He has a book about it. He has a, a really, really good PNAS paper that's super short that kind of condenses all of the ideas. Yeah, but yeah. he was really the, I think that he was one of the first people to, in the modern age after after Stapledon. I think I heard y'all Stapledon. talking on one of your shows about that where you, uh, something along the lines or somebody was saying that the, the animists got a bad name. That there's kind of more to animism than just silly rock worship. By yeah, I mean, it's... I mean, this all comes down to the fact that... How do you define life? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. It's like, biology is the study of life, but what the hell is life? They give you a listicle of qualities... That cells do. That They're cells like, this do. is life. Life is mm. cells. But it's like... It's like, really? well, well, what are cells? Well, cells are, you know... Yeah, it's... A, it's but like, at the, at the end of the day, life is definitely a tendency of matter to express this will, right? This this desire to exist, this persistent, des- like that. If you read Darwin's Origin of Species, as much as he mentions selection, he mentions the struggle to, to survive, the struggle to exist, I think is his words. Yeah, yeah the organization. And so where else is that happening, right? Where else yeah. is, is pa- our patterns struggling to exist, you know? Because like a rock doesn't really fight being broken up and scattered in the same way that a life form does. No, but, but if, yeah. when you start with, you know, the bacteria and the lowest, you know, the uh, archaeobacteria, would they call it, you know, mm-hmm. it's just so hard. See, I don't believe in all that shit anyway, man. I'm a, <laughs> <laughs> you know, the, the you don't believe that, in bacteria. I am not. A, no, I'm not an Aristotelian. <laughs> I don't believe that all life <laughs> emerged in a warm little pond for God's sakes on this planet. You know, he he had two notions, Aristotle, you know, one, that we were the center of the universe and physically we were orbited by the sun, and two, that all life started on a cold little pond. Well, it took 1,500 fucking years to break number one. Copernicus had to, had to do that, and we're still stuck with number two. You're like, come on, man. What, what's your alternative? Oh, my God. I think that life is absolutely omnipotent out there. They've swiped the space station window 10 times. The Russian did. Russians did over six years. And every single time they came up with plankton, diatoms, E. coli, staff on the outside of the fucking space station. 
Wouldn't yeah, they brought back that? a bunch of stuff from the moon too. They they chalked it up to contamination. Yeah, but. yeah, 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 yeah. And they said it, you know, is contamination. Well, they they found diatoms from the Barents Sea, and they said, well, the Barents Sea, there must be some phenomenon. This is the interesting place they put themselves in, and no follow up. But the Russians who had the material published four or five years ago. I had missed it at first. I saw that they'd found plankton, then that story disappeared, and then finally something came out. And the Russians equivocated and said, well, either this stuff is coming from above, if you will, and coating on the space station, because this is diet, this is not living material. This is hibernated, diet, desiccated. Like microfossils. Like just add water life, right? Yeah. And so you find it all over the space station. So they said, well, since it matches the Barents Sea diatom, it must have lifted up through some kind of unknown currents. Or they kind of name it, whatnot, that there must be some phenomena where things on the Earth manage to get 400 kilometers into space. Okay? So that's, that's their kind of central... Co- or, or it came from above, and it's actually just floating around out there in cosmic dust, which is just comet material. Okay? And published that paper. And that was groundbreaking. No one paid any attention. Because... That either means if that if number one is true, we're seeding other planets. Then you've proven right there that where there's dust of life just coming, that the Earth is spewing out that we didn't know, but diatoms can make it to space without spaceships, right? That's pretty fucking incredible, right there. I mean, that makes a lot of sense to me, but you still have to. Either way, you end up a panspermist. Either right, I understand, but the, do you do you do you think like? Well, I guess this comes down to cosmology because it's like. Do you imagine panspermia has just been going on forever and will go on forever, and there's no real origin point for for life? Absolutely. Or do you imagine That's that it originated and and there is no Big Bang, and that it is beyond our comprehension? Why we're here and how long it's been and where the start was is not something that's ever going to be grokked. But it is absolutely timeless, and life is essential. It's not accidental. It is a function of the universe. It is the higher organization in the plasma realm, and then in the rocky solid realm like we are, which is 0.01% of the matter in the universe is anything that we would recognize as stuff, right? That some of that is imbued with life, and that's us. But the greater life consciousness is basically plasma dust talking to each other and organizing themselves i think people just have a really hard time with the idea of eternity i think it's just they really like we since we have a birth and a death it's like we have to look at everything that way i think that it's not the fact that people have a problem with eternity i think that the formulation has to be put in such a way that it makes sense because it's like look if you have a body which is Mm -hmm. a cell that cell has to have a point where it appears because mm-hmm. there, even if you assume that the universe is eternal, I think that we all agree that there are forms that are, forms are not eternal. Mm-hmm. There is no form that is eternal, even atoms as well, the they pass through. the form is like the through, ideal, right? So like the form of the atom is eternal, maybe. The form of the, the, the idea, of the but I'm literally saying that like a carbon atom has a lifetime. And it passes through the heart of a star and it turns into something else and then it gets blown apart and then it goes back to hydrogen and then it's just this perpetual cycling. Okay, so we know that bacteria, we know that cells are made up of component atoms. 
Therefore, cells themselves cannot yeah. be eternal. What is eternal is the idea of life as a state of matter. Yeah. yeah, and so that organization has always been around the same way that like a vortex has always yeah. been around. Yeah. So the idea of life as a process that organizes matter yeah. into cells and bodies eventually, absolutely yeah. eternal. And I yeah. think that that's why people are like, what do you mean it's eternal? Because they're always like, well, there has to be a starting point of, of where life began. And well, that's because people are conceptualizing life as They do the same cells. thing with atoms themselves. They're like, there was a moment when atoms began. But even then, I'm like, look, that's that's a metaphysical question. Like you have to, you you do have to at some point realize that you get to the point of, well, why is there something rather than nothing? And that is at the border of what can be explained. And that's where you have to ask yourself about creation, because if there is something, if if nothing is an option, then that means that this is optional. And if this is optional, it must have been created because optional things Why would you are bifurcated paths. Yeah. 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 Well, because yeah. it seems like there could be nothing. I can conceive of nothing. I can conceive of void. If I can conceive of it, why isn't it possible? Well, if there's a positive, there has to be a negative. But that right. Well, and s- but even the people, if even if you don't dive that deep philosophically on what beginning of life is, if you just call it cells and call it bacteria and E. coli and whatnot, right? And that that is like. And we're all ready to accept it began in a warm little pond here. Well, why the hell does that pond have to be here? Why? What is the likelihood of that? And I know that's, uh, you're, you're asking actually a better question, but just for people who aren't willing to go that far, just say life is kind of what you think it is, you know, uh, microorganisms up to us. Well, why in the world would we still think that? That's not absolutely, not only is it not just out on some planet or another star, but it actually is absolutely everywhere. And see, that's what Chandra and Fred proved in 1972. They said the clouds, the nebulous clouds, when you went in and looked at the spectra of the one of the ones near the galactic center, it was a perfect match for E. coli. Hmm. Well, well, first they proved it was organic molecules, right? It used to be their whatever it's graphite little bits of graphite or something floating around out there would that be organic no nah. okay but it, it yeah it turned out that it's they discovered that it was organic molecules and that was a huge accomplishment it was in nature everybody accepted it and then it stopped and then fred and chandra kept moving on and they published 75 other papers that were never refuted that said actually we don't think it is simply organic, which you have accepted. We believe it is just add water life. And the spectra of that first cloud that they tested matched E. coli perfectly. All right? You ever seen that graph? It's mm-hmm. great. Yeah, they yeah. show the spectral graph of E. coli. It's Mustafa et al. Well, it's Wick Ramasinghe, Huil Mustafa, and, and his brother, um, Dale uh, Wick Ramasinghe, who's an astronomer in Australia. And they went and got the spectral graph, and it matched E. coli. And it, they just couldn't get any traction on it. It's one of the world's greatest scientists, Fred Hoyle. And he died in sub, you know, there's a bronze statue at him at a university. You know, he's still revered. 
But people will often say under their breath, isn't it a shame that Fred went so loopy in his later years? Bullshit. Mm. He just outran everybody so far that they just couldn't take it anymore. And they just stopped with, oh, these clouds are organic. Isn't that curious? Well, hell yeah, they're organic. It's a bunch of damn microorganisms floating in a desiccated that life is everywhere. Yeah, well, one of our, I mean, you don't even have to go that deep, right? Because the cutting edge theories of the origin of life, like we have a friend working down at UC Santa Cruz. Yeah. And like his mechanism for the origin of life is a warm pond thing, but it has most of the ingredients raining down in these chondritic asteroid, you know, particulates that have all of the building blocks in the first place. But see, and so like it doesn't block. take I... much of a leap of faith to to think, okay, well, all the building blocks are already somewhere else. So why here only, right? I mean, they life has to be everywhere. Combination chondrite that wasn't that didn't have life. It's always contaminated. I mean, the damn Bill Clinton went in the Rose Garden and said we found life on a rock from Mars. You can go see that on YouTube. For God knows, the President of the United States said that. And then <laughs> Hopefully had, he played the saxophone after We still managed to shoot ourselves in the foot. Isn't that incredible? I think it's just so hard to make the case that it is life from somewhere else. Because they go and they test it, and they're like, well, shit, its genome looks terrestrial. But and that's if because we're seated with that stuff. Those are our relatives yeah, out in space. but we're like supposed to be seeded by it a really long time ago, and I there's mean, this, a rate of mutation. This is a fundamental and, problem you run up. It's falling this in is, all the time. They like look when a, when a chondrite falls that has yeah. like a dinosaur fossil inside of it. Mm -hmm. Then I think it will be absolutely incontrovertible. I mean, people will argue about whether or not it's a fake or whatever. But at the very like, I would take that because I think that the pr the biggest problem for me is that when these chondrites fall, yeah. and if you slice it open, mm. it's not like you find micro fossils of bacteria in it. I've been really trying to mm. find places where there's evidence of actual cells, and it doesn't Have seem you seen that these little tubular what about MH whatever. What about the mm. Martian meteorite that Clinton announced? Uh, didn't they, I don't know. Yeah, and that. then you got the guys down there at Huntsville, you know, uh, what's his, God, great panspermis that's still in NASA. But, but no, and they found the, there were clearly organic fossils of microorganisms within the, the, the matrix of the meteor. These are like the little tubule looking things? Yeah. Yeah. I mean. Said, oh, well, that's right. It wasn't just beyond dispute, obviously, but it was right. good yeah. enough for the president. At one time. Not a scientist. And then, and, and then somehow, I guess Bill just went nuts and, you know, jumped the gun or something. That's what they made him out to be. And then they rolled it all back. Because here's why. Astrobiologists, it is the most phony, blatantly phony discipline in all of science. It is the only well funded <laughs> fighting words in fighting the words business of denying their own discipline. That's crazy. Nothing, why nothing is good enough for an astrobiologist? Go ask one. Show them the graph and say why does a E. coli graph match you know a nebulous cloud in space? Well, that's well, well that does old crazy with promising oil talk. No, 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 no. I didn't ask you for a sociological interpretation of the scientists. And how it went for them. We know how it went. I'm saying, why does that match? Is that a coincidence? And why do you find this stuff on the outside of the space the, station? Do you know the name of this paper? Yeah, MH. Oh, uh, we'll put Mars Fossil Meteorite. No, I found, I found the Mars yeah. Fossil Meteorite. 
Uh, and I'm, I'm I'm looking at the picture of it, and so I I looked at the photograph oh, the of yeah. the the SEM, and I was like, oh, that looks really familiar. And then I went and I looked, and do you know of, of this idea of nanobes? No, not particularly. Um, so basically, um, people yeah. that are in origin of life research, when they pull out cores from inside of the Earth, they sometimes find these little pockets inside the rock that are these fossilized tracks that are smaller than bacteria, but they're bacterially shaped. And so basically, there's an entire controversial question as to whether or not it's possible to have bacteria that are so small. And so it seems like mm. the reason that the Mars thing became questionable is because their size doesn't match up to what we would expect from a bacterium, which mm. doesn't mean that it's not. It was just, I realized that that was the underlying principle of the Richard controversy. Hoover with it. Like, is the guy at Huntsville. We are delighted to announce that Demysticon 2024, our very first scientific conference, is officially launched and you can buy tickets right now at the link in the description and also in the link that is up in either this corner or this corner. We are going to gather in Austin, Texas on April 7th and 8th of 2024 for two days of talks on consciousness, mythology, archaeology, solar physics, hypnosis, and much, much more. Buy tickets now up at this link. We hit the ground running in this podcast. Best case scenario. <laughs> okay. I wish all our podcasts were, were this easy, actually. No, nah, well, um, yeah, I believe in hit the ground running. It's just weird. You know, when you first get into this stuff, you want things to be scripted or you think you hit it, but it, as it turns out, the more off the cuff, sometimes the better. I think people are sick of that, honestly. They spent the last 50 years with scripted media, and they're just like... Oh, podcasts are the best thing to happen to humanity since the printing press, man. The long-form conversation, it, it, it's, the, it's the balancing to the loss of attention, you know, right? and the distraction. It's funny. We've got this one thing where we're, we're either watching 45-second videos or three-and-a-half-hour podcasts. Thank <laughs> God, you know. It's a revolution for sure, man. I hope so. Can y'all see my screen? Uh, not yet. We gave you permission. Oh, I haven't shared it yet. Yep, yep. That would that would help. Okay, this is just to show some graphs, but okay, there. Can y'all see that? Uh, it's loading. Yes, kind of. Where yeah. if we sit like five feet away from our screen. Yeah, if you can full, can you full screen that <laughs> so graph? You can you're see like in? some squiggly lines. Yeah. Okay, hold on. I've got a. Should, you know, we should have like little mon like little monocles. <laughs> Spyglass. <laughs> Spyglasses. Here you go. Opera glasses. Ah, beautiful. Right, nice. So that's the first one they did, right? And that's Galactic Cloud IRS seven. And right. we're looking at like a spectral. So that's readout. the spectrum of. I don't know what they've this got. Is an absorption one of these is E. coli, and the other is the light from that cloud that's a pretty good match that's a pretty good match right and then you go yeah. the other ones then they went and they did the same thing for comet halley when it came by in 87 boom oh god not much of a boom okay there we go emission dust by comet halley observed by wakrama singh and allen on 86 compared with normalized flux as a desiccated e coli now those are words in a paragraph that just never appear in science. You're taking two. That's astrobiology. That's actually finding 
evidence. That's what they're supposed to be doing is finding evidence for biology in the stars. Well, there's the evidence. So refute it. Find me the refutation of that in nature. It's not there. I guess they were just I, my guess is the refutation is, yeah, those are the same spectra, but that doesn't mean that it's organized into a life form or something yeah, like that. That's like, right. all, it has all the components. It, but, but that's what you follow up on that basis. And you continue to observe with that hypothesis that that could be true. And they didn't do that. Yeah. I think that the modern science is just really allergic to hypotheses, right? It's like there's this interesting divide where we're in this hyper-empirical realm of science. There's always been this war between the empiricists and yeah. the the rationalists and the rationalists are always fond of multiplicity of theories and hypotheses and you know let reason do that do its work and yeah. empiricists are like unless we see the smoking gun and in the hand of the murderer then we're not even going to talk about this oh yeah astrobiologists just to pick on them a little bit more are like the people who look for keys under the street light you know uh, yeah, and archaeology is kind of in the same mess, too. Oh, God, don't get me started on that. I actually know what I'm talking about there. <laughs> but I think it's understandable, like, to have, like, a, a, a minutia of compassion for those folks. Like, I understand why they want to be so hyper-conservative with their theories, because, you know, they're building these really, uh, what's what's the word, sort of incremental careers where they're developing some theory over the course of 40 years and they want to be able to just slot in a new little piece into it very carefully and construct this very unassailable narrative that has no gaps in it and like how many of those narratives can you tell when you're talking about something that happened 10,000 years ago or uh, you know 10 light years away from us it's like but you're gonna have missing pieces and that's that's just for conclusions you know, and, and called announcements or whatever conclusions. Uh, yeah, I got you. But what about hypothesis forming? Yeah, the well, hypotheses are so narrow. Hell, they haven't tested for life. I mean, first of all, it's probably a conspiratorial setup in some way. The Viking lander confirmed life. Oh, the, the, the labeled release stuff? In yeah. Scientific American three years ago said, I was the principal investigator for the Viking mission. We discovered that. life. I'm 87 years old, and I'm sick of people saying we didn't find life on Mars. Right? Did they put another direct test of life on any other probe that has gone to Mars since? No. They don't even really seem to be testing for chunks of nucleic acid. Well, they're, they're not even really tubes, testing right? for building blocks, really. Yeah. Like their their tests up. aren't set up to be able to detect it. I mean, yeah. what would be up though? Like, what's the? I think what's up is is it all started with Newton. Honestly, I mean, Newton basically said we don't do hypotheses in science. Like he was like, here's the mathematical laws for how gravity works. I don't know how it actually happens, and yeah. that's not our job. And we shouldn't even mess with it anymore. Well, yeah. Okay, so he actually said huh. we shouldn't mess Good with test. it until we have enough data. So, like, if you read the next yeah. sentence, so he adds it, so that he, he adds this thing to the Principia where he's like, hypothesis non-fingo, I don't fucking know how gravity works. You know right. what? Nobody does. It's not the job of the physicist to do that. Yeah. Yet. Yet. He's uh, like, we need well, to collect more data thing. about the cause. Yeah. And once we have the data, then we can start to think about cause. And nobody's yeah. ever gotten to the point where they're like, data's but, gathered. But the, the results of that is, is like several, grounded. I mean, several hundred years of making formula that it described you know creating charts like that that you can fit curves to and you can formulate you know quantitative relationships patterns let's say mathematical patterns and that's it it's like that's good enough you publish it boom 
The conclusions are like kind of this paragraph at the end, maybe, and you're really conservative because you don't want to piss anybody off. And so that whole interpretive level has just gotten sort of just strained and squeezed out of science, which is kind of tragic. And Well, the the paradigm is creaking and sclerotic, and it's I think it's breaking. And you always have that ceiling that you're going to be around when everything breaks, you know, and it never does. Think of all the people (laughs) that died and never saw it get, but so interesting outside of communications technology. You know, but I think it's getting there, guys. Yeah, there's I mean, a lot of revolutions. I mean, ju- about just the Patrick, open. the fellow you had on, but the plasma research guy, he's way yeah. ahead of everybody. And there, there are probably at least two or three dozen of those people around the world. And I think that they're going to bear free. Now, it also might come out of left field, like with Bendall. But, but I think, uh, I think we're going to get there. Do y'all, do y'all follow? I just became interested this year in T. Townsend Brown. You've been down that rabbit hole. A little bit. We have a friend, yeah. uh, Jeremy Riss, who runs yeah, the Alien Scientist sure. channel, and he's yeah. he's we we actually recorded with him probably like two weeks ago, and he's way big on T. Townsend Brown. He's the guy who uh, basically founded electrogravitics, mm. where he was doing all of the electricity yeah. and sonic experiments and showing that he could get things to levitate. And yeah, that's right. And it was kind of interesting because I had some vague awareness that there were people in the 50s in lab coats trying to make ufos right <laughs> you're like yeah they were on acid they were yeah, doing yeah, yeah, stuff yeah. in labs <laughs> and, and, and then it uh and, and there was a lot of press about that we're gonna you know fix gravity and all that and what i didn't know is that if you see the pictures i mean this is just one little sh- shard of evidence but the 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 pictures of townsend brown with these ufos like that's what his device looked like it looked like a ufo it turns out he was making those before Roswell and before UFOs. Dun, dun, dun. Yeah, I always figured when I saw those old pictures, oh, well, what they're doing, those are guys that are into UFOs, and then they're getting a big piece of metal and trying to make it float. <laughs> and it and it turned out that he was using that shape <laughs> prior to there being a flying saucer acknowledged. And I just and then what really got me into it is all the the critical late research was all done here in North Carolina. And that blew my mind. Outside of Winston Salem, with families funding it, who I still know, who are in my social circle, hmm. and I was like, "Holy shit!" I mean, they're not good friends and everything, but I know people that know the. Um, oh God, what's his name? Banson. Did um, he have any promising prototypes? Like, are there are there demos of this, or did he? Did he get- uh, there's there's a lot of smoke, yeah, and then it yeah. all went away in six no, fifty eight. He went quiet for eight years. Hmm. He even wrote in his, like his last, we have made it work, bye-bye kind of thing in his journal. Interesting. And then, and, and, and then he pops back up as a UFO advocate eight years later and never says much about the technology anymore. That's so interesting. Yeah. And it's almost like, yeah, they shut him up. He took the deal, but they, he still was going to study UFOs by God, you know, but the government picked it all up. And I think that they kind of got the, I don't know. I don't want to. Yeah. What's your take on this? What's your take on credibility entirely? Nah, you're good. (laughs) What's your take on the UFO reawakening right now? Does it feel like smokescreen to you? Um, yeah, yes and no. I'm not sure of all the players and where they sit. And I think there's probably some mischief there. But I think it's a function of the internet, and I think they can't play whack-a-mole anymore, which begs the question of why they gave us the internet. 
But I think they gave us the internet because they knew for a good 30-year run, it would do nothing but make us stupider. But at the end of the run, they didn't know. Well, they you know could have speculated that, oh, shit, it also eventually this stuff is going to pop out. You just you can't hide things as easily with the internet. And yeah, it stays at a 1% level of, of uh, understanding and people following it and all of that kind of stuff. But 1% is pretty good and you can build off of that. And I just think the ideas are all out there. It's kind of like the Kennedy assassination. I heard somebody say once that they said is a big researcher and it said, do you think it's been solved? He said, well, of course it's been solved. We've had the Kennedy assassination has been solved for, for 30 years. There are 2000 books and one of them is right. Uh. You just don't know which person solved it. Mm-hmm. It's all there. You know, and I think science is at kind of the same place. We've already made all these wonderful discoveries. It's just getting people to settle on it, getting it funded a little bit different than the Kennedy assassination, because then you've got to change the, I think that they made science a government operation specifically to keep people away from these technologies. Like if you go dump enough money into science and manipulate or not manipulate, but keep the grants, like we're going to go fund a thousand people to do a thousand interesting things but not this thing. And if anybody ever sends us a proposal for a grant that concerns this, we're going to give that a C in the grade. You know what I mean? Well, but I wonder if things they, that are on, safe. Yeah. I, I also wonder if those people don't get a call a couple of weeks later yeah. from someone and get Absolutely. an opportunity that we just never hear about. Because I'm like, look, if this stuff in is real... In the middle of the night. Yeah, in the middle of the night. Like we had, we, <laughs> Yeah, exactly. We had... Uh, we wanted to do some low-energy nuclear fusion conversations. Yeah. And NASA put out a paper a couple years ago about low-energy nuclear fusion. And it looked really oh. promising. And we reached out to every... A lot every, of confinement studies. A lot of, yeah. Out of Cleveland. And we reached out to every single person on that author list, and everyone was like, yeah, I'm not really working on that anymore. You should no try talking kid. to this guy. Yeah, they just sent us around the mill. It was like, go talk to this guy. And this guy was like, go talk to that guy. And then somebody was like, well, I'll talk to my administrators. I'm not really the podcast guy. And we just, it just uh, I'll give you dead a, in the water. Bob Grinier will come on. Okay, we'll talk to Bob yeah, Grinier, but will, it's like. Uh, yeah, no, no, no. I, I think there's some mischief. And I normally didn't believe it. See, I used to work in the U.S. Senate. Like, I, like, got out of college. I worked for six years, you know, getting the boss's bag every morning. I mean, was right there. And I kind of thought one of my takeaways were there weren't big conspiracies because Washington's too fucking stupid to run a big conspiracy. You know, there's just no way that this collection of bureaucrats could possibly be effective enough to have super technologies and quiet enough to keep them... And I just don't believe that anymore. I think there's another level that I just couldn't appreciate. And I was being an arrogant young staffer prick. I remember my mom was into things like this. And she'd always talk about the conspiracies. I'd say, Mom, I just don't believe in all that. I think that people can't, you know, they're just various sociological reasons why that can't occur. And here I am at 57 years later, and I think that they might have pulled it off in some fashion. And that these things have been hidden from us. And I forgive them because I think they could be weapons and it falls in the weapons category, but I don't forgive them anymore. I think it's going, it's time to go ahead and, you know, you know, break this open and let's just see what the hell happens, you know? And it's a really fragile ecosystem because all of the power balance in the world has to do with petroleum 
All of it has to do yeah. with the interdependence of economies. All I was going to say, I think money is the reason why why this is so stagnated. Yeah, and I think that it's also war. I, I, I really don't think that countries want another world war. States themselves, I think, realized how expensive and painful and difficult it is. War tends to lead to the turnover of governments. Mm-hmm. And if we assume that governments are also a form of life... Mm-hmm. Or as a mm-hmm. as a state, it's a state mm-hmm. of matter. Mm-hmm. Once you get enough cells together and they're complicated yeah. enough, they form governments, yeah, and then you, you have to deal with yeah, yeah, exactly. And so, yeah. okay, they have a will to survive, and so they don't want to go into another massive war. And so, it's really important for every single one of them to manage what's out and mm-hmm. being released into the world because if they let go of it, it could lead to war because somebody wants something that they have and. With money and with war, I just, I feel like there's a lot of incentives to just I do just your best like to cheap, handle it. Like cheap, really, really cheap, clean energy. Like how many people who are making money off of the alternative are in the way of that ever seeing the light of day? It just seems like yeah, the basis but, you of know, the Like I'm involved with this thing right now and maybe somehow we missed something and it's some kind of fraud. Maybe that's why we aren't getting messed with. But, and believe me, Malcolm's had seven attempts on his life. And nice. that's all documented in a book. If y'all want to switch back to Malcolm a little bit, because <laughs> I, you know this is new info. And like I, what I like to hear on podcasts is people talk about things that I didn't know, even if it sounds like bullshit. So we'll put that in this category. But so is one of the first things that drew me in and deeper into this thing when I was checking him out is there was a book on him. So I read the book and I said, well, that's the damnedest thing I've ever ever read in my life if this is true and the book was written by an australian um author of some note uh roland perry who is 70 years old nobody's fool been around investigative reporter he came in contact with malcolm three or four years ago and said oh my god this is the most interesting person I've ever met in my entire career. And he wrote the biography of Mel Gibson and stuff. Right. And he said, this is the most interesting person I've ever met. I've got to find out whether this is bullshit. So then he investigated it for two years, Malcolm's story. And then he said, this is true. I've got to write a book, but I got to fictionalize it because this guy's secret, but I'm going to go just change the names, maybe a gender or a place or two, but that's it. And tell it cold, just as Malcolm has uh, told it to me and I've proofed. So he wrote this book called The Shaman. And it's the the lead character is Al Hoot. And that's why we call Al affectionately. We call Malcolm Al personally in our little group. Call him Al. So Al is in the book. Then he gets revealed. His name gets revealed on Rogan. So... But the author, and he needs to do another one, did a podcast before the reveal. And here is a guy, Cum Carpenter, who works for the Indian Technology Institute, French guy, lives in India, interviews Roland Perry, who wrote the book about Malcolm, but his name is still secret. So suddenly about a 45-minute interview, but he goes and tells that whole story and said, this person is out here. I've written this book. It's true. And now he's come out. So I read the book, and I'm like, Malcolm. Did you really, while being chased by a gunman, crawl down a fire escape on the Fifth Avenue, on the phone with the CIA, 
unarmed yourself and they told you to burst into the Chrysler building and make a run for the Chrysler building because there would be more guns there than there would be any other public place with guns. Sounds like a good CIA pro tip. You know what I mean? Like they know what to do in Manhattan. If someone's after you, bust in the Chrysler building because there'll be some pretty good guards there and they'll pull a gun on him. So they burst in the building. They pulled a gun on him. Malcolm straightened his tie and walked off. So I said, Malcolm, said that shit really happened, man? Is that a little bit of, you know, uh, literary license taken by Mr. Perry? He goes, well, mate, that's pretty much accurate. I actually went down a, uh, it wasn't a fire escape, actually. It was an elevator shaft. It was an elevator shaft. You know, and then the other weird things, you know, and you're like, really? So you kind of trust the author on that. But I'll give you one. He told me that he was involved in the very horrible, horrible thing, the Port Arthur massacre, which is the largest mass shooting of all time. You know, and it was like back in 94 in Tasmania, where Malcolm's from, in Hobart, I believe it's in Hobart or a nearby town. And it was just a day of horror. And I think 90 people were shot dead and there was a huge standoff and all this kind of stuff. So Malcolm said this was just casually. at 35 people, it looks like. Oh, 35. There you go. And then Australia took everybody's guns and all that. Um, But he mentioned it kind of casually and said, I I was pastor to the Port Arthur families. And I was like, huh, well, that sounds like probably a piece of bullshit. If somebody was Tasmanian, they would tie themselves to the more or less most famous dramatic thing that happened in Tasmania in the last 50 years. And so then I go on my newspapers.com, you know, I've got one of those subscriptions so I can go read old articles, type in Malcolm Bendall, Port Arthur says, pastor Bendall gathered the families at the local church, blah, blah, blah. And he had been there. And I was like, huh, ran that one down. And it just, it keeps proving out and out that this guy's story is true. And now he is on the run and won't on the run, opposite on the run. He's telling everybody he can about this. And that's why your question of what he could on a podcast is interesting. He certainly would seem to, he'll tell the hotel clerk about his cold fusion machine. <laughs> right. I mean, everybody is entitled to know absolutely everything about it from Malcolm's perspective. First is a protective measure. That's where it started was, oh, shit, I'm in the open. I need to tell everybody as quickly as possible. And two, just to let us know the good word. And uh, and, and and the damn thing seems to work. And you can go to strikefoundation.org. We're cleaning up the website. But um, mm, all of the notes are there, and they'll they'll be quite perplexing to you. But others, like Dr. Herlick, uh, you know, have read it all and said, you know, that he's got it figured out. Um, so there are good times coming ahead. I think there'll be incredible personal prosperity. I think energy, the cost of energy, will be like the cost of information. Where you know, twenty only twenty years ago, you were taking two little metal tokens and putting them in a box outside your office to get a piece of fiber that you would get your information from. It's only I think that that, and then it dropped to nothing, right? In, in our lifetimes, and I think that the same thing's going to happen with energy. And Katie, bar the fucking door, then man. And uh, the, the cost of energy is going to drop to zero. And it's not going to happen right away. His thing now, there's a bunch of engineering and R&D that has to be done using the principles. And he's got beautiful mock-up here. I'll show you, I'll show you how wild this stuff gets. 
Okay, so where? I mean, I think it is like really scary to be on the edge of something, especially like when the intelligence departments start to get involved. We've talked, you know, we've had a few, yeah. a few close calls. Well, personally, but also just yeah. people who have been on the show, like who seem to have been really dissuaded from even continuing in their efforts because they just didn't enjoy the heat. And it, and it oh, seems like oh. that pressure is sufficient to really push people out of the, out of the inquiry in the first place. Like I'm thinking of Diana Pasolko, right? She was kind of looking at some of these materials with her friend Gary Nolan. Diana, yeah, yeah. And uh, she's I don't a, know, she just had some. I'm, she had I'm some run-ins. And... Speak it. Um, she's willing to speak at the summit, and I'm trying to work it out. We'll yeah, she's in North Carolina. Stuff. Yeah, um, but I know she had some run-ins at the airport with you know just just kind of spooky stuff, and just I think she was kind of losing her stomach for it a little bit. I mean, her her newest book that's coming out is still on the same subject. Yeah. So it's so like I think that, and she too. and she's on like third printing, I think, of it uh-huh. already, and it hasn't even. I think it got released. Uh, 20 days ago so three weeks ago and she's already on the third printing of it so this is clearly massively driving her success and so even if it was freaky i think that there's a push from the outside world to just keep digging deeper and deeper into it because you know you're onto something there's this electric pull towards getting closer and closer to the heart of something meaningful i've got to get to know diana i've got an intermediary that said she would speak and also Mm. God, who's the uh, kind of country boy from Fayetteville who's been abducted? Um, I forget his name, but but both of them. What, Wilson my or something? With, oh, gosh, I hate forgetting names on a podcast. There's just nothing worse. It, the abductee from Fayetteville, North Carolina, uh, who's down by the Cape Fear River and the balls of fire came up. He's an interesting guy. And But my problem at the Cosmic Summit is we we it's not a problem. It's a blessing. But we have a subject set that is basically high ancient technology, right? And that's embodied by Ben Ben Van Kirkwich's work on these uh, Egyptian vases. So catastrophe, the Younger Dryas event, which we should probably touch on, and the possibility that there was a precursor civilization that had higher technologies that are unacknowledged. And that's kind of my thing. But then it's so much fun to bring in the UFO subject because it's so hot. So, mm-hmm. you know, and last year I had Micah Hanks, who, who broke the Grush story in the debrief, and he's a good friend in North Carolinian, and he helped host the summit a little bit and gave a UFO presentation. So I'm trying to figure out a way to have a segmented UFO thing without swamping or diluting my main subject, which is a little tr- tricky. Not that people care about this stuff. Point being that I'd like to have Diana, the abductee. I'm having Paul Shatskin, who wrote The Man Who Mastered Master Gravity about T. Towns and Brown, the book about mm-hmm. Brown. He's coming for sure. And so I'm going to have to have this like UFO section at the ancient technology catastrophe conference, but I just can't stop myself. It's too damn interesting. They really overlap. And there's a strangeness to the overlap because I think that there's on the fringes people who suggest that all of it is due to UFOs and due to aliens having arrived. And I think that's that's what... Yeah, it's a weird but, thing to manage because on one hand you want to be credulous, but then on the other hand there's this really loud and vocal proponent that says that it goes into this crazy direction, and then you're responsible for the crazy direction. And I think that there's a theory where if you have one crazy idea, you actually are not allowed to have other crazy ideas. I, I say that all the time. That's you, what I've one crazy. Amen, sister. <laughs> that dude's name is Rand Watson, by the way. That he had Walton. a confusion. <laughs> 
right? So Randall told me I got a, and this ended up going to Rogan and shit, right? But he told me, I said, Randall, no, 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 no. You can only have one crazy idea at a time. You can't go dilute. You can't be the cold fusion guy and the catastrophe, geological catastrophe guy. You're going to dilute them. And everybody else felt that way. So when he presented Malcolm, I mean, everybody in our immediate circle, and we got a great little friend group, you know? And we're like, no, Randall, no, no, it's a cold fusion con. It's a con. <laughs> now, I wasn't necessarily on the con, but I was just like, just communications wise, don't go on Rogan and suddenly be the cold fusion guy. Well, it all happened, you know, and he did delude his thing, but, but God bless him. But where Randall goes on UFOs, there's a whole, and this one even talked about five years ago, and now it's become a part of the UFO conversation such that it is is that there was a breakaway civilization that somebody booked (laughs) that picked up and left before the YDI, Mm. right? And that that is memorialized on the ceiling of the Temple of Hathor at Dendera when they're getting in the sacred boat and going to the moon, and it's all about the moon, and that somebody took out decamp for the moon. Now, why, if they had such powers, could they not stop 4,000 incoming comet fragments? Maybe it was just, even they couldn't do that. Maybe it was just such an overwhelming trauma that they saw it coming and said, well, we just, we can't take care of them all. And they took off and they're, they call it breakaway civilization. So kind of UFOs and catastrophe meet on that, but that is highly speculative to say the least. Maybe but they I, just w- wanted to cleanse it with fire. Yeah. You get systems, but I really believe that by the time that you get technologically advanced enough cl- to cl- build yeah. a ship to go to the moon and then sustain yourself somewhere else, yeah. you're the product of something that's such a mess yeah, and so intractably enmeshed and unable to move that there's probably an ancient, ancient urge to be like, you know what? Let's wipe the slate clean. Yeah. Let's just, let's just leave for a little bit and then... Yeah. It'll take care of itself, and we'll come back, and we'll restart We'll keep an eye on whoever, you know, stays down <laughs> yeah. there, and make sure to pick up all our tools. See, we'll, they had teach to pick- them, we'll teach them architecture and agriculture in a couple thousand years. It's going to be fun. Yeah. We'll just start again. Maybe it'll be yeah. better next time. Yeah, that's Graham Hancock and UFOs and catastrophe and all mixed into one, and I love it, you know, but it's going to take us a long time to get there because we can't even prove that there was a damn catastrophe, even though we've proven it. Yeah, what do you yeah, make of about that? that. Well, my thing with Hancock was I was already way into this. I got into it in 93. So um, I was well aware of the Younger Dryas event when Fingerprints of the Gods came out. And I'm like, oh, my God, he doesn't have some of the latest research. And then it got really acute by 2001. And then we started publishing in 2007. I'm like, Hancock needs to pick this up. Then I made friends with him. He was in touch with our group as well start feeding him information. And it was great because he had said two things in fingerprints. He said, one, there was a catastrophe and we went for a pole shift, which he probably regrets, but that's okay. That There was a grand catastrophe and that there was a precursor, as I call it, a precursor civilization. Call it freaking Atlantis if you want. Okay. Those are his two things. Then in the intervening and over the next 10 years, 15 years, serious, well-published forensic evidence comes forth that proves beyond a doubt that there was a damn catastrophe. And there are a lot of things I doubt, including cold fusion and all this kind of stuff. But I know for a fact that 12,887 years ago, probably June 30th, because that's when the Torridays come by, 
we had a bad, bad, bad day. That is a fact. We have published 50 papers to that effect. We have provided hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of pages of absolute laboratory-driven, hands-on forensic evidence of it, and it still can't be accepted. But it it handed a lot to Hancock and people who think like we did because one half of that paradigm got proven. Now, going and proving that there's a precursor civilization is another kettle of fish. But I think that is actually coming forth. Finally, someone has found a, a way to get to that. How do you prove it? And I think that is the uh, pre-dynastic stone jars that Uncharted X and my buddy Ben Van Kirkwick are having scanned. It's actually Ben's kind of covering it as a journalist. It's a fellow named Adam Young and Nick Sierra and Chris Dunn's son, Alex Dunn, are scanning these vases. Are y'all aware of this? Mm-hmm. Oh, you'll love it if you're not. So they, somebody finally, after years, centuries of people puzzling over that at the, like beneath Saqqara, beneath the, the step pyramid of Saqqara, there are some estimate something like 30,000 jars or fragments of jars, mostly fragments, but there've been hundreds and hundreds, if not thousands found that are in still in great condition. So there are museums and collections all over the world. You can buy them at Sotheby's for 50 grand. You can get a basalt, perfect jar. No one had ever, everybody always kind of marveled at their perfection. And they're, they're all admitted to be pre-dynastic. So that's key. That's the Younger Dryas event has some of the same hacks. So some of your wild claim is already settled. Like, I don't mean to draw the analogy too tight, but like with the Younger Dryas, Every scientist admits there was a really wild time, right? So that helps. Then it's just, how do you explain the wild time? So every archaeologist admits that those stone jars were created before the pharaohs, okay? They find them in the pre-dynastic graves. And in the pre-dynastic graves, they'll find the modern day non-miraculous technology mock-ups of the jars. So the people that died then had their jars that they were making that looked like the other jars they were buried with that someone had left them. And those are perfect and carved from stone where the ones they were then making were carved from alabaster. And so were the ones during the pharaohs were all carved from alabaster, softer materials and made to look like the original ones. So can you, can you tell mean, people a little bit about what, what's so miraculous about those jars if they're not that's with I'm sorry. I was going on too long with the preface there. But they took the stone jars and have now been subjecting them to um, high-end metrology, measuring the shit out of them with a million-dot point cloud, the, the zero, zero, 001 damn nanometer you know, resolution, right? And building a frame model of the jar in a computer. They're absolutely perfect. And they're, they they're built out, they're, the aren't they like carved out of granite or something too, they're right? They're, they're of granite. And they're and, what, which millimeters is, thick or something? That's been what people puzzled over for many years was the fact that how in the hell do you do this with a chisel? I mean, there's just, or rubbing stuff on it, right? But maybe, maybe that's true. But what they have added in the last year is the cold, stone cold fat the, the geometry and the precision of these things are beyond our ability to manufacture without booting up a very expensive national program, presumably, to, to, to accomplish this. 
And then, so they put out these scans and just, I love the internet. The internet's so much smarter than science. Put out the scans. Ben does on Uncharted X, you know, the videos revealing all this information. And then a guy named Mark Vist, a mathematician, engineer, genius, quiet guy, not an internet guy, pops up on his blog and says, I looked at the models y'all gave. These are absolutely manifestations of high math that the, the flower of life is embedded in this jar. That was just one jar. So they had this one jar and everybody said, well, maybe it's an outlier. Maybe you tested the one jar. That would be perfect. Now they've gone on and have now scanned another dozen of them. They're all showing the same stuff. It's absolutely impossible to have created those jars without one, something that we don't know about technically in manufacture, and two, a knowledge of fundamental mathematics. And Malcolm will tell you, and these guys are leaning that way too, that they're, it's, it's a, it is a uh, breadcrumb for that technology. They were leaving that behind to show you the way on the math. Hmm. So what era is this from? So pre-dynastic? You know, it's actually a really... Six to 11,000 BC. I mean, not be, you know, before 3500 BC. I mean, you can zoom out a little bit too. I, I came across this interesting chart of just pottery across the ages in Egypt. Yeah. And it, it was very puzzling to me just on a first glance how the quality yeah, of the art seems to degrade. Like it starts off essentially really, really high quality. And then as the civilization progresses, the quality in art kind of takes a dip. And I think there's like some resurgence in the late period by the time the Greeks have, have possessed it. But that's exactly it's right. It's very, very puzzling how that a art huge goes. drop off from those pre-dynastic jars. Then the pre-dynastic become... jars are really carefully made, but they almost look manufactured. And so my immediate thought is, okay, so if there's a civilization that's manufacturing things, mm-hmm. and if our civilization is similar in practice that means that people are at jobs and they're doing things for 8 10 12 14 hours a day that are maybe preventing them from being able to actually make art because you would imagine that tribal art what do you mean you, wouldn't you consider the jar I, I don't think it's art i think it's math and stone but it's math you consi- and, uh, it's it's well, probably not made by human yeah. hands right yeah so it's like the difference between something that is crafted mm-hmm. versus something that's manufactured suggests a difference in the way that people are spending their time because think well, of oh go ahead yeah. oh, well we'll just relate a concept i believe is that the metrologist which is the, the discipline of measurement right which these guys are metrologists they work i can't say the name they don't use the name of the company but they work for a well-known aerospace company both of these guys are doing the scanning and they make things that have to have nanometer precision every damn day because people's lives depend on it. Right. Mm -hmm. And what they say is that the precision has to follow function that nobody makes something super precise unless it's necessary. Hmm. Right. That, that, that you can't like, they'll tell you, if you look at the Sotheby's description of the jar, they'll say, oh, they kept essential oils in it and sheep's blood or whatever. Well, you just don't need (laughs) to go to that kind of trouble to hold sheep's blood in a jar. You you don't need to make a jar that special to hold your oils 
That's ridiculous. No one would do that. That form follows function, you know? And I think what I think Nasi is just saying like that you you need specialization, right? You need you need people who, who uh, their parents made pottery and their parents like there's people in society there's a guy who just a not class of not people. just that. I think that you have to have the level of development that you have at a Lockheed Martin or at a yeah. Boeing or at one of these aerospace places where they're able to manufacture things with such precision. Like, think about the material level, basis yeah. of civilization that is necessary to create that kind of institution, like yeah. you just said, and what that does to the free time of the people that are part yeah. of that civilization. Like, you have less time for crafting some delicate object that comes just from the spirit and you're like mm-hmm. channeling the the gods and and mm-hmm. putting it into like a little statue of a lion or something or a cave mm-hmm. painting mm-hmm. it's a different type of society and maybe that's why the art goes down because if you look at our art right they'd now they'd have to be very prosperous they'd have to be prosperous and busy like how many people have time to paint rembrandts or Mm-hmm. or just any of these classics like people just there's there's not a a freedom of being able to create across the entire society the same way that there must be in tribal cultures because in tribal cultures you see artifacts that are uniformly beautiful and crafted mm-hmm. and so by the time that you get to precision you lose some spirit in the process mm-hmm. at least that's what it would seem to me i don't so know if it the moves time from art to Machine showing off, and now it's like but you gotta it's, have a purpose for it. Why would you, yeah, unless it's just standard why practice, would you seek precision, precision without purpose, unless it was a philosophical thing and you were super prosperous and had some pretty nifty tools. And well, if you had the precision from other tools for other processes, like say you were doing industrial chemistry or something, or mm-hmm. any kind of industrial manufacturing. You know, you might have developed those tool sets and then just turned them loose. Like, you know, like the, the computer chip, right? It's a great example. Developed for military industrial purposes, space flight, stuff like that. But now we're just talking on Zoom with computers. Mm-hmm. And it's not because somebody set out necessarily to develop it for Zoom. It just happened to be useful for that. And like, imagine mm-hmm. that somebody finds a, a dump where people were collecting cell phones. Right, because mm-hmm. there's places, and so 10,000 years from now, somebody unearths the dump, and they're like, mm-hmm. my God, look at the precision mm-hmm. on these circuit boards. This must mm-hmm. have had deep ceremonial meaning. And it's like, well, no, that's just the material <laughs> basis of the civilization in which we live. Like, this is just the water in which we swim. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Everything's a fertility cult. Everything <laughs> yeah, they did. Absolutely. The yeah, they must have... People. That's what that's what my buddies, the Snake Brothers, called the butt flat people. That the, they were just, just people, and everything they did was based on fertility. Absolutely, <laughs> you know, all of their temples, all of this. And you're like, no, nah, man, there's something else going on, man. Nobody, you know, the, they had some deeper understandings. It's just every everything's taken as campfire stories, and that's why I resent the archaeologists so bad, so much. You know, is that first of all, given their wokeness of late. It's all about respect for indigenous people, right? Okay. Well, 300 fucking cultures around the world, I guess most of them indigenous, whatever we, maybe we're not indigenous, indigenous, but all say there was a tremendous catastrophe. 
you not that long ago. And some people made it out on a boat and blah, blah, blah. You know, every single culture says that. And then these people who hold themselves as respect respecters of the indigenous say, oh, that's a campfire story. And you're like, you don't respect those people at all. If you respect any, any ancient oral tradition or the people, if you respect the people, then damn, give their oral tradition a chance. That's really respecting them and saying, huh, well, maybe that group called the Comet Research Group has proven that the Hopis were right. You know, maybe we all share the same week of death, which we do. And when the conquistadors landed in Mexico, they were floored to find the Aztecs celebrated the same week of death in the in late October, early November. And they hadn't communicated. And the Chinese celebrate that. It's all around the world that that week has long been known as the week of death. Well, that's also when the the fall tards come. And that's when Bill Napier and Victor Klub and the rest of the British neocatastrophists said that we have a bad day with this meteor stream at times. But if you then try to give the respect to those, all of that oral tradition and non-oral, the freaking Bible, the story of Noah, that, that and you give that respect, it's all, oh, that's just a bunch of bullshit. So I just think that that archaeology's treatment of 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 people's origin story for humanity that everybody shares to treat it with contempt is to tr- create to treat those people with contempt. So that's a little bit of a rant, but there's a really they, they're strong, the racist, if you will. <laughs> there's a really go ahead and strong. Say, well, I think that's the irritating racist that, yeah. and all this stuff. No, 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 no. He respects those people. He believes them and is working with them to, to explain their origin story. You're the one who doesn't respect them because they're just brown people that live in huts and tell campfire stories. The, that's my bottom line. I mean, that's what's. I think that's what's so irritating to many people about the woke narrative is that it's so shallow. It's like it's it's more just like, hey, what's the least amount of effort I can do to look like I'm? It's more about appearances really than about actual yeah. action, and I think that's what kind of undermines its power as as a guiding light yeah we had a really interesting conversation that's the essence of virtue signaling it's like yeah it's literally like i'm gonna put on this air of doing something but i'm in doing that that's enough and i don't actually have to follow through and actually make things better we had a really interesting conversation with a guy named uh joshua mitchell he's a georgetown professor and he wrote a book about the way that woke culture tends to be very religious in spirit but without any of the religious trappings of organized religions oh yeah where there's this idea of original sin and oh, yeah. the the fundamental transition from let's say christianity to woke culture is that in christianity you can be forgiven for the original sin there's mm-hmm. atonement that is possible. Mm-hmm. But in the new religion, there's an indelible stain that mm-hmm. no amount of atonement can remove. And I just always think about that because it does seem to fall along atheism versus theistic lines. Mm-hmm. And there does seem to be something that's fundamentally necessary for people to organize around beliefs. And so you just create... Yeah, now we've chosen false gods. You know, uh, or the woke have. I mean, you can have misguided religious, like, um, you know, social phenomena 
I know exactly what you're saying. I agree. I'm not being able to put well, it's the techno utopia, sure, but, but it's the we, techno we, we utopia. have a natural desire for religion, but that doesn't, uh, we spent 5,000 years kind of getting these other ones, right. And now we spent approximately five years forming another one that has no moral dimension to it beyond virtue signaling, which is not moral because they don't walk the walk. So Man, yeah, we, we had this really interesting conversation with this atheist biologist yesterday that was that he spent you know his whole life deriving how humans need the presence of god like how it serves this evolutionary purpose and everything but it's it's so ironic that his conclusion at the end of his his life's work is we'd be better off without it <laughs> yeah. and it's like it's it's a very interesting conclusion well that's kind of where, where sam with. harris is mm. yeah it's you very know, similar he, very he similar. absolutely will put it better than any of us can you know why this has become a religious like phenomena and then at the same time, he'll, you know, credit religion, traditional religions for having a more positive effect on us, but then say that they're full of shit too. So, <laughs> you know, um, yeah, it's interesting. It's interesting how I, I really like the way uh, Peterson puts this. He's like, all these atheists, you know, they, they claim they don't believe in God, but they certainly live the, their lives as if they do. Because if yeah, you really just yeah, understand yeah. God in the most basic abstract sense is like, you know, the sum total of consequence or as the highest good possible it's like people still orient their lives towards that like whether or not they they acknowledge that you know and i think it's because they're just so scared of the superstitious elements of it yeah that, that they yeah. can't look beyond to the bigger meta picture yeah but it, it's very strange i actually want to talk to more atheists because i find those conversations really really fascinating what well, had a tremendously negative effect on catastrophism mm -hmm. right and that's what i am i'm a catastrophist and we went out of fashion, you know, in the 19th century as kind of this brute, brutalist, um, uh, what would you call it? Rationalism kind of took over, right? And as part of that, there was, you know, Darwin played a big role and said, okay, we've finally grown up and, you know, we're not 6,000 years old. We've proven that we're going to distance ourselves from these books who say such things. And they threw out the catastrophe part, right? And said, oh, well, that's old campfire stories from the Bible. And we have grown up and grown past all of that. And so it just became anathema to modern geology to admit something that happened to be said in the Bible, because we were probably right to throw off some of those old things, right? But we threw the baby out with the bathwater in terms of catastrophism, that it was absolutely clear that people were communicating something that is, you know, occurred. But that suddenly became like you were quasi-religious to believe in that, you know, and uh, and they beat the hell out of a bunch of people, including Emmanuel Velikovsky, who was right in essence, and Carl Sagan took him down. Um, I don't know. It's been a kind of a shameful thing where science took its resentment of religion and it deformed the development of science because of their resentment was so strong. It's and really it's, there's, there's a really cool yeah. revolution happening in in planetary science, like let's yeah. say basic planetary astrophysics right now, which I've been kind of going through in my uh, my lecture series nature? at the university. Well, uh, again, the catastrophism thing is kind of rearing its head a little bit because it's very difficult to explain the let's say the present appearance of 
the solar system without it having undergone a number of transitions, right? Yeah. And this is becoming increasingly apparent now that we're in the last five, 10 years able to see a lot of other solar systems. Yeah. And there's crazy shit happening. Like a lot of these huge, uh, gassy, big giant, we'd call them giant planets in our own solar yeah. system. They find them really close to the sun and they're getting their whole atmospheres stripped off, right? They're getting yeah. completely remade. And so there's this almost evolutionary idea creeping into planetary science, which is cool, very much, man. very much fighting against the uniformitarian idea of the past that like, no, 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 everything kind of formed right where it is. Everything's yeah. looked like this since the beginning. And so that same tension is rearing its head there, but in some sense is a little bit of a safer place for it to happen because it yeah. doesn't really affect, you know, our daily lives in the same way. I think mm. it's not about, you know, how civilizations go or anything like that. that. Well, it's not about religion and encouraging. So. It is, yeah. It's really exciting. I, I think that that's going to be a, a huge, huge revolution in the next. I don't know. Hopefully, yeah, ten years, maybe century. With the Big Bang, too. That's part of it. Fun that's a watch. big part of it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, talk about in crisis. My God, Thomas Kuhn should be reporting live on the Big Bang. I mean, they got problems, man. I mean, just the fact that cosmology even became a science is really preposterous. Like, because cosmology is considered essentially as contextualizing human existence in terms of the rest of the universe that's the way it's been considered by philosophers for thousands of years and then the 1960s all of a sudden they mathematize essentially the creation story and peg it to a few pieces of data that are really under fire right now and and then it's a hard science all of a sudden it's very strange how science just gobbled up that that element of almost mythology you know mm -hmm. just the way that psychology gobbled up the soul and made mm -hmm. that a science in, in the same 20th century window it's very interesting how science has tried to to gobble up all of the duties of of that have been traditionally ascribed to religion well, which is why people say believe in science yeah believe in the science oh, there's these God. freaking there's posters at our university like on faculty doors that are like oh, believe i believe in, in i believe in science like they say i trust the science i believe in science i mean like, that just reveals mean? a total ignorance of what it's all about man I it's mean, a, it's you not know, a faith-based institution. It's awful to turn science into anything that has to do with belief. Why would you say that? That reveals yourself as a, a, a moron. And like, not only that, but is it even so damaging? Right? Is like material appraisal of mechanics, which is really what science started out and should yeah. really be about, is that even capable of talking about things like what should be the case? And if yeah. it's not, and we put all of our should bes. You know, if we if we expect those from something that's not capable of addressing those questions, it seems like we're really putting ourselves in a lifeboat without a paddle. Yeah, it's like we we have basically undermined all the institutions that are capable of, of negotiating that territory, and, and we're looking to this this institution of science, and it's like science is like I I, I don't really do that. But you well, know, I think, I think the the good news is people like y'all though in these conversations, it's overwhelming it. The number of people that have been exposed to the correct areas of inquiry in the last five years alone exceeds the last 50. That There are these conversations going on all the time. And the podcast, y'all can see it happening. There's cross-fertilization. There's a whole networking effect of not the one million podcasts that are out there, you know, but, but say, let's call them the 1%, and that's growing constantly, and it's welcome to everybody, and it ain't over yet. But that 1% is cross-fertilizing, and it, it, it's resulting in very valuable information. 
that is going to overwhelm that old system. I, I, ho- I believe it. What's I hope in a damn journal right. in five or 10 years? I, I, I don't really, know what's really going to be the right. standard of proof. Maybe it's just everybody grocks it because they all heard it and they love this guest and he's saying, I know he can't get published, but we take that as true. Uh, I think it's going to overwhelm it. I think There's you just, might see a rebirth of institutions. Uh, like my, yeah. my hope is that, you know, you, you do have the like extreme concentration of wealth in the hands of many of these billionaires, but the billionaires have the opportunity to fund independent research too, which is really unique. And that's kind of the way that science blossomed back in the Renaissance too. I mean, Galileo wanted to name the freaking Jupiter moons after the Medici's, right? Yeah, yeah, like, yeah, yeah, that, yeah. That research was all funded privately. And so regardless of what these like stale academic institutions want to keep, you know, tromping out as as the solutions that people are like hey this is this doesn't fit i think that there is ample opportunity for independent research to get funded and for new institutions because look institutions all decay across time that's a fact Mm -hmm. like every single bureaucracy gets kinks in it over time Mm -hmm. gets corruptions and so why shouldn't academic institutions let's say the institution of of public science i mean it's going to get corrupt too and so the solution is to build Build a new bridge alongside the old rotting one. Amen, like, brother. Amen. Um, what was I going to touch on with the the YDI has been an absolute perfect textbook example of all of this in action. It makes people so upset. Yeah, I want to. I want to try to understand I, that. Y'all were talking the other day about the fun of being one of the first people, and it kind of just gratified me personally because, man, I was I've watched this younger Dryas event thing go from approximately six people to millions watched every single little growth of that thing because i you know i keep up with it to say the very least and now it's beyond so that i can i can't can't watch all the videos you know there's more content out there now than one person can keep up with and that's not stopping anytime soon so this thing without the assistance of any mainstream endorsement whatsoever, despite their private fears that it's true. And we know that's true. You go to the back of the faculty lounge and they're back there furtively looking at our papers. Like Tal Alamam was the most popular scientific paper on nature, still is. It's the number one. It's had 750,000 downloads. And it's under threat right now though, right? There's like this big... Like, oh yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Trial came, unfolding. Right? Oh, the damn wokesters came completely after it because it mentioned Genesis in the abstract of a Nature article. I mean, how often does that happen? And uh, so they knew that that one had to be taken down, and they did their best, man, and accused us of manipulating the photos in there and all of this shit. And if you added up all of the sins that they ascribed to us, most of which were not valid. It still wouldn't be an uh, of refutation of it. It's just total, you know, nitpicky bullshit. Said that oh, you you uh, photoshopped out the hammer here and the tape measure in this thing. Well, you got us. We did. We photoshopped out. And there were little things. What about the reorientation of that image? I think that was the other. Yeah, I agree. Those other complaints seem completely ridiculous. But what about the what about this like reorientation of this? I got to get on back on pub pier and go see what it is. But I think Alan and them took care of that. I mean, I haven't found any weaknesses in it. and I'm on the paper and there was a lot of communication, but I can't 
I've been kind of busy with shit. So defending the YDI papers has not been on my list this year. But there was a reorientation. They I, changed I the angle of the figure yeah. in order to, to show correspond. blow. Yeah, exactly. Because the sea was to the southwest and they needed the impact to be pointing to the northeast. And so they kind of reoriented the picture, cropped out the north arrow in order to make it look like it was pointed in the right direction. And the, the other stuff is, you know, Elizabeth Bick got into it and she was she yeah. was showing where there was these overlaps of little tiny areas of the photographs, which it's like, they, they're not in important areas and that does seem like a tempest in a teapot. But with the reorientation, it does seem like there is a desire to take the data and to get it to fit. Some special pleading. Well, it's just like... Okay, so one of the biggest criticisms of Alan West is that he's so deeply involved in biblical study. And eh, yes and no. I mean, you know, God, I've got these people bugging me on Twitter, you know, because of the Rising Light Foundation. I'm actually on the board of the nonprofit. It is a freaking nonprofit. It's a part of that Rising Light thing for paperwork purposes. Alan has never, I have spent thousands of hours on the phone with Alan West since 2005. And he does not come off to me as anyone that is driven by any kind of religious or spiritual things. Mm -hmm. I mean, yes, he's have involvement with evangelical, you know, faiths. Okay. So fucking what, you know, and, and, and if we found that he was also somehow using it to, uh, create some religious cult or something, I guess something would be there. But I don't see the connection between just because Alan's a man of faith, which is not apparent. Like I say, at all the talking to him, he's never done a whole lot of any Bible beating with me. So I don't perceive him that way at all. What Alan is, is a polymath. He is an absolute classic autodidact polymath that he can run an SEM characterizing nano diamonds. He can type spear points. He can function, you know, do EDS probes, you know. He can type pottery. Um, he knows his ancient paleontology cold. I mean, it goes on and on and on. How many disciplines that man has mastered. And other members of our team, including members of the National Academy of Sciences, agree with me that Alan is the most intelligent generalist they've ever met in their life. Alan is a gift to this planet. He is also has a work ethic that is beyond anything I've ever seen. And there's kind of an 80-20 rule there. And if people don't, you know, maybe it undermines us, but probably about 80% of the work on the papers is done by Alan. Right. And just absolutely indefatigable work. And this is laboratory work. This is not speculation. This is very difficult stuff, but it's also been done by a lot of dead hands. And that's one thing that gets me. Why doesn't Elizabeth Bick tell me how the hell the platinum get there? Let's just say, Alan, in a fit of wanting things to fit, changed a photograph. Okay. Guilty as charged, Alan. Okay. How'd the platinum get there? Why is there a thousand times more platinum in that layer than above or below it? Are you saying, are you suggesting that that's a fraud? Because then there have to be dead hands out there at Oregon's SEM and whatnot that are salting the samples with platinum 
and that Chris Moore at University of South Carolina, when he's doing his platinum, because those are cheap tests, that it's a great indicator. I was just Why going through the, the, there's a huge Wikipedia page on the Younger Dryas impact hypothesis, and almost all of it is devoted towards why these various conclusions are not, you know, it's very strange. They actually, most of the conclusions are, most of the refutations are, yeah. are not refutations per se. They're just like, hey, we could explain this in a different way. We could, yeah. we can use fires. We can use all sorts of other mechanisms to make these same things happen. Which is strange because it's not exactly a refutation. It's more of a counter hypothesis. And it's a counter hypothesis that's built on the basis of not liking the biblical overtones. I think that you pointing out that Genesis was mentioned in the abstract of the paper yeah. is the grounds on which people are deeply suspicious because there is a history of trying to approach the Bible as a literal document. Mm-hmm. that stretches back a really long time. And like you said, there's definitely myths and stories that are recorded in these ancient texts that warrant exploration and understanding as something that is fundamentally true, not necessarily in the exact specifics. Yeah, it's like I, the, the novel that the guy wrote about yes. uh, about Bendal, right? Yeah, 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 you fictionalize it. Well, just the oral story gets some elements of storytelling. And, you know, one thing, but, but there's, I've come so far on this because I wasn't a particularly faithful person, but after going on two seasons at Talala Mom, I actually started taking it seriously. Well, there's places Which, that, that people lived in and they told oh, these well, well, stories and well, they, they reflect Anastasia, something that was lived. That's what I was going to say. One of the things that led me to being a more faithful person is that Dr. Collins, who runs that dig, and, and hey, guilty is charged. Everybody on that dig is an absolute Bible-beating Christian, if you will call it that. Not everybody, because I wouldn't, you know. But I mean, not, I'll give my favorite story about Tyler Mom. We're sitting there digging. With the first year I go over there, it was the week after they burned the Jordanian pilot in a cage, ISIS did. And mm-hmm. ISIS was moving through Syria and had taken over Iraq and Jordan was threatened. And I'm like, I mean, it was the hottest part of that ISIS thing. And I'm like, oh my God, I'm going to a Middle Eastern country on a biblical archaeology dig. This is not good timing, (laughs) right? And then you go over there and you get on the bus every morning at the same time in front of the hotel and drive down from Amman to the Jordan Valley to go um, prove your book. These people are kind of now, I think that their integrity is beyond reproach. I know they use the scientific method. I know they separate their faith. You can actually operate. It is possible to have two conflicting ideas in your head at once, and they are proof of that, or two conflicting approaches, seemingly conflicting. So they're going, getting on the bus every morning, same time, whatnot. I said, damn, it would be hard for somebody just to come, easy for someone just come by and clip a bomb to the back of it from a motorcycle and watch us go boom on the road, you know? And I brought that up in the bus one day because no one ever talked about that. And the lady in front of me turned around and she goes, but the Lord will protect us, George. And I said, that ain't good enough, man. (laughs) (laughs) I just, that's not the security detail I want. I mean, I love the Lord, but I just don't think, I think this thing. So uh, these people are Christians, but they can also type pottery by sight. It's incredible. You know, they don't use C-14 dating in the Middle East. you think they would, but they know the pottery so damn well 
that they can do it in 50-year increments. They can say that this was maybe not that, but close to. So you get all these shards, and those people, and they, they ain't doing that from the Bible. They're doing that because they're great archaeologists, and they, and they are. So Dr. Collins, he, the thing that kind of let me, he pointed out, as he does very well in lectures, that the Bible, interestingly, is full of geography. That the campfire stories include all sorts of, they stopped here, they went by there, they came upon this spring, and all those places exist. And most of those details really add nothing to the story. So you're like, why did the campfire story make up this tale that has, just from geography, eight different geographical locations that do not add anything to the more morality or whatever the greater message of the Bible tale is, right? It's a travel log. Why would you make all that up? And the more I thought about that, I'm like, I dismiss our old book. I always thought maybe there's something to the New Testament, but the Old Testament, that's definitely campfire stories. No, 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 no. When you, The more I looked into it, I was like, there's very good reason to believe there was a historical Moses. And incidentally, you know, Tell Our Mom had the greatest second act of any archaeological site on earth. You know, it sits at the foot of Mount Nebo. So the promised land, that is the promised land. When you look down from Mount Nebo in the, the um, monastery up there, you see the Jordan Valley. You see uh, Jericho in the distance. You see the Jordan River equidistant between you and Jericho. And at the foot of Mount Nebo is Tal Alamon. And that area... Is called Abel Shatin, the land of Acacias, the, the field of Acacias, and which kind of suggests a DMT connection. But mm. the Ark sat on Tel Alamam. If that story is true, it was, oh, it's always been acknowledged. Excuse me, the field of Acacias has always been acknowledged as the last camp, encampment of the Israelites before they went. To to Jericho, which is at nine miles away, right? That is that, like, it, now people may not believe in historical Moses, but even those that don't say that, yes, for thousands of years, that has been known as where it's at. And then what's in that small area? Well, this giant cultural mound. So there's no question that the if there be an ark, that that's where it's at, and Moses never made it down to the bottom of the hill. Right. And I just think that's so interesting. So you're over there digging for Sodom and all this stuff. And then you say, well, what else have? Oh, the ark sat here. And then, the, and of course, that was after 700 years of total, um, I'm trying to say, um, pandemonium. No, 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 no. Just ster sterility. Oh, okay. The site goes sterile for 700 years. Mm. So you have the 13 of uh, the 1700 BC event, an airburst, which we think we've proven. And then it goes sterile for 700 years, and that's when Moses shows up. And then it starts to, you know, it's hugely saline, right, that it blew the Dead Sea over that landscape, and it's just salty as shit for 700 years, so you couldn't grow crops. But right about the time Moses shows up, it it becomes fertile again. Uh, <clears throat> Do you find the salt in the layers? Yeah. Oh, it's salty as hell. Like, way, way above which would be expected. So they suspect that it kind of blew the Dead Sea up into the valley. Um, I think it's very interesting that, you know, uh, um, 
Santorini occurs at exactly the same time. The largest volcanic explosion, I guess, other than Thera or whatnot, but you know, the that at seventeen hundred and there's huge arguments over the exact dates of Santorini. But if you kind of average it all out, it happened right when Tell Al Mom happened. This is like the Bronze Age collapse business? Yes, the Bronze Age collapse. Well, the Minoan collapse. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. The the total Bronze Age collapse is like 1300 BC. But me being a carpenter and everything I see as a nail, I attribute all of that one way or another to uh, cosmic interactions. That The sea peoples, give me a fucking break. Sea peoples, my ass. And uh, that those burns and the giant burns and all that, there were increased encounters this stuff happens probably once every 500 to a thousand years you'll get some interaction with the tards that it fucks things up and leaves no mark because they're air bursts um but we're super lucky that tunguska didn't happen over new york city or something like that exactly very different very different exactly that's why i say it was at june 30th right you know i'm looking at the geologic map right now of the area and that Jordan River Valley looks like it was entirely underwater at some point. Really? And it looks, well, yeah, because I mean, so <laughs> I have a way of looking at maps where I see ancient lake beds everywhere because we've lived in the Pacific Northwest for long enough Yeah. that, you know, the the great flood story that uh, J. Harold yeah. Bretz was the one who first... The Scablands. Mm-hmm. The Scablands, and now Carlson has picked that up and, and basically told the story and made it very compelling and so i spend a lot of time looking at landscapes to see where water used to be and so tell al hamam is in the flatlands of this jordan river valley mm-hmm. the dead sea right now is to the south west mm-hmm. of it mm-hmm. but the and but there's a there's a sea to the north which is the sea of galilee, the sea of galilee. and it's mm-hmm. obvious that they used to be linked like it's mm-hmm. a huge flat channel and so the criticism for the Tal al-Hamam paper is that the photographs were rotated in order to mm-hmm. account for the impact into the Dead Sea in order for the water to rush up into the valley. But if there was more water that was there, then you don't even have to rotate. The, if, you, if you can show that that sea extended to cover the area between the Sea of Galilee and the Dead Sea, then all of a sudden, the water's right there, and you, it doesn't matter where the impact comes from. I don't think, I think that would be more obvious if that were in human history, you know, in the last 5,000 years. I mean, I guess you wouldn't find any fish fossils, but I don't know. I'll have to yeah, look at that. Pull it up is. on the terrain of Google Maps right now. Yeah. I'll do that. Like, yeah, yeah. I'm a total map geek. I'm, I mean, the time periods are really difficult to estimate. I would imagine that when the sea levels were lower, that the this might have like this this super long lake that you're seeing, imagining, yeah. was probably from before, like during a different interglacial period. It could have been from the. I mean, I don't know why the the thawing of the Younger Dryas wouldn't have filled all those areas. Why is it gone now? Well, because it's a desert now. The climate's changed. Like, these things just must change over excruciatingly slow periods of time. And so if you fill a valley like that, and everything from the mountains is draining down into it, and there's mountains that are coming from Lebanon and up in Turkey, and all of that water table is draining down into the Sea of Galilee and into okay. the Dead Sea. Because you can see that the channel goes down 
and then kind of spreads out by the time that you hit the Negev. Mm-hmm. But you can it goes directly to the Red Sea. I thought they had kind of the Dead Sea's rise and fall pretty well characterized, that it wouldn't have been that according, I mean, obviously that's the Rift Valley, right? So it's not carved by water. It is a... It's so flat, though. It's so flat, though. Well, you got sediment, you know? You've got erosion down into there, and that flattens all out. But right. Nastia sees lakes everywhere. I so. do. I think that water on the landscape is a feature that is deeply underappreciated because it's hard mm-hmm. to date when it came through. Like we live mm-hmm. in this, we live in this river valley in southern yeah. Oregon, and I walk around, and when you get up above the valley, I look and I see how it must have been carved by water mm-hmm. because of the way that the rock deposits are. Mm-hmm. Like you can go up to the hills and the hills that are tall are made out of one type of rock and then the hills that are low and rounded like you would find at the bottom of a giant course of water mm. are made of sand mm. and I I'm wish like I that. looked out there that'd be interesting man I've or never been come to out we'll, we'll, we'll take you on is that around. supposed to be a part of the scablands I mean is that acknowledged that the features you're looking were involved no. in the floods no, the no. we're way too floods. far south we're like uh. we're at the level we're at the border of Oregon and California, so we're way far south from there. Yeah. There's but I'm some, like, there's look, man, I'm gonna I mean, look at the Finger Lakes. Look at the Delaware Water Gap. That's one where you're like, huh. Ah, it's kind of hard to believe that those mountains rose and it cut the gap because the river just stayed there and eroded the rising mountains in it. I mean, it looks more like something cut through there. But that one would be, and of course you've got the Carolina Bays. Are y'all familiar with that rabbit hole? I looked into it last night a little bit. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's. I mean, of course, a, again, people have their alternate explanations for that. That's what I'm trying to understand. Is it seems like, it seems like the mainstream scientific community goes to great lengths to propose alternate explanations for all of these features that can be summed up in this tidy way with this impact event and. I'm trying to understand the motivations behind that. The you, bays you are seem a to great example, man. And I can't say I know what created them. It's been working on it for 30 years. But I know they were all created at once. Is my first stopping point. Do not tell me, as they will, that, that, that like you're saying, they overcomplicate things so terribly trying to make it fit. Doesn't What's mean the motivation I have the answer, for that? Though? But I know the other side, the Lacustrian, Aeolian, uh, uh, you know, wind water hypothesis is is just doesn't stand with me. There's no way that it would create the regularity of those features. Then they say that that the bay forming occurred in three different phases. Some of them separated by tens of thousands of years. But if you look at all bays, they all have an arranged nature to them, right? If the Catabatic winds from the glaciers conspired once again, 20,000 years later, to start making bays. I don't think they would make them, they would organize them into the same arrangements that the last generation of bay forming would have made. You would see genetic classes of them. You would say, oh, well, that's right. There were three different phases, and you can see phase one looks like this because the winds weren't exactly like they were before. Right, that it would have. 
if you had the bay for me, that the wind wouldn't have left them all still oriented together, that there'd be genetic classes of them. So I believe fundamentally that they were all created at once, at one time. So you got to explain that, whether it was, I'm not, not at all convinced it was connected to the Younger Dryas event. And people may say, well, George, you're the, originally I was the Carolina Bay guy and the Younger Dryas guy. I've moved away from that. There are reasons to believe that it it's not necessarily, I don't think it's been completely undermined. But the idea that these things aren't special, that you see them around the world. No, you don't really. You don't see things that are as clear as bays are, you know, is clearly unusual. Um, God, so is, just is, even, is, is yeah. this all just driven by a hatred for Graham Hancock? Or <laughs> like, I'm trying to, under, I just really want to un- understand the motivation. Like you mentioned that, People were pushing back because they don't want to see the anything referencing the Bible in scholastic yeah. liter and scientific yeah. literature. Is yeah. it that simple? Yeah, I think it makes them. They think that that's not uh, automatically. It's not science. And the younger Dryas impact. It's but just why? because it's been popularized by somebody they hate. Is that you know? Yeah, well, but, well, you mean why hasn't that taken off? Yeah, it just seems like it's it, it is at, at the very least it seems like it seems like a reasonable hypothesis, right? And right. and of course all of these these gripes, you know, they they're worth entertaining too at the same time, but the outright dismissal of it seems like it must be ideologically motivated and I don't totally understand that ideology. Right I now. think I think it's more of a personal psychology thing. There's probably some obviously some group think going on, but you can't, you know, it's often termed rewriting the textbooks. Well, I don't think rewriting a textbook is necessarily that difficult or humbling, right? But if you have sat up there and three times a week lectured to young people and told them the story of Earth as best you know it, and obviously said there are a lot of things I don't know. I'm your professor, a lot I don't know, but I do know this. And all of a sudden, it turns out that by God, you missed the biggest thing that ever happened. So basically, everything you said before just really wasn't useful. And all of a sudden, your whole career looks like it's not useful. How do you respond to that? There is no way anyone embraces it. We spent a lot of time trying to figure that out. Like, how do you get people who have spent their entire career saying one thing? How do you get them to be able to say a different thing without losing face? Because... I really genuinely believe that it's possible to do that. I have uh, seen people transform. It sometimes takes decades, but I've seen it in my personal life where it is possible to take someone whose entire value system depends on them not seeing things a certain way. Yeah. And through gradually over the course of many, many years, introducing ideas in a, in, mm-hmm. in a very gentle sort of way, giving them the space to be wrong. They come mm-hmm. around. And I feel like when I see people talk about Graham Hancock and I see Graham Hancock talk about the mainstream archaeology community, yeah. they they want to come to blows. There's mm-hmm. there's so much anger and there's so much vitriol that everyone is just entrenching themselves deeper and deeper and deeper in the perspectives that represent their side or whatever. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, guys, we can 
we can resolve this. It doesn't have to be embarrassing for anybody. You could be the person who wins the, if you, if you jump on this and you change your mind. It, uh, you know, I don't think it's sacrificing face for truth is definitely a trade-off that's there, but I think it's sacrificing grant money. I think the government owns science now, period. But why does, why does the government care about if there was a younger Dryas or not? Uh, well, they're going to fund things um, that are safe, right? Yeah, I don't think there's any conspiracy there, but I just think that you it creates a path of acceptable grant proposals. And if you go turn one in that suggests that everybody's discipline's been complete bullshit, that somewhere in the, not complete bullshit, but we missed the biggest thing that ever happened, um, I, it just, it, it doesn't, it ain't going to get granted. And, and, you know, to that point, and you talk about resolving this, you could either talk people into it with incremental evidence over time, or they could just embrace it and just go characterize the, comp- the constituents of shallow surficial geology around the world. This is not expensive. You could nail the entire Younger Dryas event in or out for tops $5 million. Tops. And somebody just gave the Comet Research Group 1.2. Mm. So. Yeah, a very good angel there. Speaking of your billionaires who pop up, um, one of billionaire is a fine man. And so we've actually got some traction in that regard after living all these years on nothing. And but what what you could do for five million dollars, you could go shallow core strategic places all over the earth that says, well, if it happened, it'd have to be here. It had to be there. These are grading soils. We know they're 13,000 years old. Our hack was to go, when I was talking about certain things that you can seize on to kind of leverage mainstream, that one is that they admit that there was a climate crash. That's helpful. But two, we went to existing archaeological sites that had already been well dated. So you don't have to be beat up over your dating, right? So they know at Murray Springs Clovis site, it's pretty well accepted. They know where 13,000 is. And there's actually a black band of soil there, of course, which there are 90% of these things. So the hack was to go to those sites, test those faces, right? And then you at least have skipped the dating part, right? But that we need to evolve from that and go do specific individual, not where you go to something that's already been dated, well-known and well-published. That's already been done. It apparently didn't work. Go and core characterize SEM, a geochemistry test, deliberately obtained cores and samples from a grading soils that existed 13,000 years ago. And either it's going to be there or it's not. That's not that hard. That's about the easiest science project you could imagine. Now, it's tedious as hell because when you get those samples, they require a lot of prep. And a guy botched that in 2011, Todd Surovelt, who's a paleoarchaeologist who set back human understanding by God knows how much by going and trying to replicate um, the uh, extraction of uh, spherules, cosmic spherules, right? from his archaeological stories because he had access to paleo sites. Well, first of all, he didn't do that kind of laboratory test. He's an archaeologist, so kind of one step back, but give him a shot. But he didn't size sort the grains. It is absolutely obvious that he didn't, and he admits that. 
And I saw him admit it. I'll talk about that in a second. But he went and published a refutation, said, I went and I studied these soils. I didn't find any of this stuff. Said, well, Todd, you were looking for golf balls and you didn't damn mesh out the damn beach balls, man. You can't do it that way. There is, and you hate to have to appeal to protocol when someone refutes you and you go, well, you didn't do it right. You know, it sounds kind of, you know, maybe you didn't do it right, buddy. You know, and now you're just sticking to your protocol and going to call everybody else that goes and doesn't get your results outside of protocol. Well, this was clearly outside of protocol. There is no question that he could not accomplish what he was trying to do without size sorting. So we pointed that out at the AMQA conference, the last conference we went to, because we got so pissed off at the mean girl treatment at AGU and all of this. And people, I mean, just make mean girls look like, you know, little darlings compared to these bastards. I mean, just intellectual snobbery without equal. So we're at one of those conferences. They're treating us all like, you know, pieces of shit. And Todd Serval gets up, gives his results. Malcolm LeCompte says he didn't size sort. And he hung his head. He said, well, you're right. And I don't have time to get back to this anytime soon. Hmm. That was in 2011. So he got in that paper that he wrote stuck like damn tar to this subject. And it is provably false. And he hasn't returned to do it properly. So what do you do in such cases? And you can't get rid of the stain. You've already proven him wrong. We know that he did it improperly. He has admitted he did it improperly. But the stain stays there and people to this day will go, well, in 2011, they failed to replicate. You're like, well, Adranikov didn't fail to replicate at the Lunar and Planetary Sciences Lab of Arizona. Uh, Mahaney replicated. Uh, uh, Guy Wonder Crater, whatever his name is down there in South Africa, great paleontologist. He said, I know how old my soils are. I'm going to go see where there's any platinum just for fun. And he went and looked at, well, you know, these paleo sites where they're normally, they're going back a million years looking for hominids and stuff, but they knew the dating on all this. He went back to 13,000 years. He got a thousand times more platinum than crustal abundance. And that just came out of nowhere. These, you get these little things coming from around the world, but there's no concerted effort for God's sakes. Just one, um, you know, National Institute grant, five million bucks. You, you could put this thing to bed, but they're scared to. Why would you not go ahead and do a well-funded, serious study to refute the Younger Dryas thing if you wanted to? Because they know what they're going to find. Um, yeah, it's a shame, but it, it has gotten better. Like I said, it used to be amongst, you could sit us all in a minivan, and now millions of people know about it. And the biggest megaphone in the world, Joe Rogan's very well-versed in it now. He's finally got it all the pieces and parts. For years, he'd say things for all kind of bug you as an enthusiast in this. But now he's finally getting it really, really right and can speak confidently on it and does it every third podcast, which is just a gift. Just to go off it's on It's really a, funny to yeah. me how Rogan always says it's, he's like, yeah, this is basically mainstream accepted science at this point. <laughs> Here's where just my dream, and I tried to get it going on Twitter. Ask Neil now, right? Hashtag ask Neil now. Why doesn't he look Neil deGrasse Tyson in the eye and go, Neil, I've had a hundred hours on my show discussing this cataclysm 13,000 years ago. Did it happen in your opinion or not? Those guys never have to answer the younger Dries question. You'll see all these other people, Elizabeth Bick or, you know, whoever, all these other people kind of scurrying around, you know, throwing tomatoes at us. 
but you never see the big guys because they really got something to lose. Right. Such slick talkers though. It's like, I saw him, he asked, uh, he had this cosmologist, Brian Keating on his show Mm -hmm. and he was like, Hey, like I've been seeing these kind of interesting reports that about the big bang, like putting the big bang in crisis and Keating very quickly brought up like the easiest punching bag. He didn't even name the guy. But he brought up like kind of this low hanging punching bag and tried to discredit him as not even being a scientist. And and it's like, I think the reason Joe doesn't confront people as much as he maybe did in some years past is it's yeah. just not productive. Like it doesn't lead to good conversation because people just, you know, they're slippery and you don't get your question answered. And it's just kind of. But see, I, th- I think slippery is interesting and useful and he doesn't have to press him on it. But just ask Neil. Let's just see. What does Michio Kushi think? Kuchin, you know, what, what, what are these other kind of mainstream you know media scientists go ahead and put the younger drives question to them and and i think it'll give them pause because there's so much evidence that if they're halfway intuitive about science then they know something's there but they don't want to you know here's what gets and y'all are good people to talk about this with i want to if i could like talk to bill nye the science guy or to uh uh, uh neil degrasse or whoever and say hey buddy What's your heretical scientific proposition? Do you have one? I don't do think you, so. Do you, Neil deGrasse Tyson, have one thing that you think that there is a, a scientific group somewhere in the world that has valid data that is being unfairly unacknowledged? They're figureheads. Yeah, That's I right. think but here's they're defined thing. by the opposite of that. As y'all know so well, the history of science is joined by one thing. It's I don't think the they know the history discoveries come. Yeah, do they not? Because right now, just as they're invented every other period in human history, there are people being told they're wrong, they're actually right. And if you are a responsible science communicator, you should at least be on the side of one group that you're willing to take a risk and say that this controversial opinion, I, Dr. Tyson, believe that they're right but they don't so that means what is the chances that they're going to reveal to you anything truly interesting or phenomenal because they have they aren't they they won't even take one of those opportunities to get out in front of where we are which is exactly where everything comes from is people get i mean institutional science would just get a new neil degrasse tyson at that point like that's the job of the neil degrasse tyson is to just rep the mainstream institutional perspective. They'll, they'll get a new one. They can get it. They can get new guys like that any day of the it's week. It's like the job of a CEO is to drive profits, and if the pr- CEO doesn't yeah. drive profits, the board gets rid of them. Yeah. The job of the person who is the spokesperson for popular science is yeah. to represent consensus, because the institution depends on consensus being accepted because it validates its role in the world. They, they don't you, want to promote anyone else's product except the main line of products. I think that it has to do... Yeah, I think that that's it. I think that it yeah. has to do with reputation. Not only do they reputation. not want to... Yeah, they're not capable of it, right? That's like, A CEO the can't C- possibly represent yeah. anything other than the tagline of the company. They, they'll just get a new CEO. Like, yeah. the institution is outside of human control, which is really weird. Mm-hmm. Because it's the same way that the state is outside of human control because it's this higher organization that mm-hmm. runs under its own directive. 
that mm-hmm. has its own set of rules. Or Insti- like the banking industry or something. It's like you better put your if you make any serious money, you better put it in investments because it's not even going to beat inflation otherwise. Probably mm-hmm. at least you better get inside of a bank that's going to give you interest. Right? That's sort mm-hmm. of an algorithm that's outside of human control because everybody participates in it, but nobody's really pulling the levers. It's, it's very mm-hmm. creepy when you think about mm-hmm. these. Uh, these kind of like only good news is we can have these conversations, and they weren't possible ten years ago. That's the thing, That's yeah. And I love your, I, I love your idea that it's the gradual release of this in an effort to save face, because the grassroots turnover, where someone who's listening to Randall Carlson now, who's fifteen, mm-hmm. who's going to go on and get a PhD in this, and mm-hmm. then continue to push mm-hmm. and actually transition it, those are going to be the people who do it. And we actually had a fantastic conversation. There was this uh, one of our one of our supporters. We do this weekly patron chat and he came and he has been studying water Mm -hmm. and he's come up with this really interesting theory about the nature of structured water and its importance to all of biology. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And he came up with it because he had this period during COVID where his lab wasn't functional Mm -hmm. and so he couldn't do experiments and so he just spent all of his time reading. And listening cool, to podcasts. Man. And listening to podcasts. So he spent three years just reading instead of coming into the pipeline, being told by his boss, these are the experiments that you're going to do, and yeah. then having the deadline every yeah. single week of, I have a meeting with my boss, I have yeah. to show data, I have to produce. He had three years of just being like, well, what the fuck's going on? And so he read all the old papers, he read all the history, he read all the new stuff, and is like, hold on a second. People have been missing this thing for 60 years. And I think I have. I need to look into structured water. Just by the way, I mean, you draw that. uh, I mean, it's a big term that has that. Just like everything else, is riddled with. (laughs) There's tons of nonsense. It goes from like the crystal. I I did my PhD in in a form of structured water too. Really? So have you ever heard of Herlick, the mathematician I mentioned earlier? I think Mm -hmm. he's a structured water guy too. Okay, he's interesting. I'll send you a link on him. Um. But it's kind of like just saying like impact theories in general, you know, it's like this huge topic. It's got everything you can imagine from brilliant ideas to just garbage. So you have to be careful. Yeah. And and, then, well, I guess we talked about right at the beginning, I don't know if it's being recorded, but people need to keep in mind that impacts are the very, very smallest slice of traumatic things that happen when there's incoming. There's a whole class of objects that you do not expect to show a crater. And they'd be thousands of times more frequent than the ones that do show craters. So that just suggests that for every crater, go ahead and picture a thousand air bursts at some time. Yeah, that's the yeah. Dallas Abbott position too. Everybody yeah. should go check out that podcast. It's it's really fascinating. I, I know I it's super am. frustrating for her too. I, and I'm going to invite her to the summit. It's another ad from this podcast. For sure. Yeah, it'd be fantastic. Um, hmm. Yeah, man. It's been like really fun talking to you. This has been a... Actually, hey, thank re- you. It's really relaxing. I've, I've kind of pictured y'all. Let me just kind of, we just had a fun science conversation. <laughs> That's the goal, man. I, I honestly wish more of them could just go this way. Very, very relaxed. Oh, I've been on it, some podcasts where I just find myself droning on and on, telling this long story of the Younger Dryas event. And there's probably a place for that, but I find this much more enjoyable than trying. People to. can find it elsewhere. They can, if yeah. they want, if they yeah. want to see the standard presentation, they can go get the standard presentation. It's been done, it's been made. We've read the standard presentation, and so our house is where we just kind of come and talk about all the stuff that's around it. 
Yeah. Well, if people want more information on it, they can go to my blog, The Cosmic Tusk, which is being a little bit uh, not free. I'm not posting frequently right now, but I have in there a resource center that has a drop down where you can choose the bib. And the bib is where me and my buddy Mark Young in Australia, archaeology PhD student, have that I've known since high school. Um, ha- we've compiled every single paper that we believe in our editorial judgment uh, is directly related to the Younger Dryas event since twenty uh, since two thousand and seven, and we've got a hundred and eighty of them, and we've coded them to where we believe editorially, whether they refuting, questioning, mildly supportive all the way in, et cetera, color code them. And then we have every paper available, much to the, I'm sure, the uh, <clears throat> dislike of Springer and whatnot. But we have we, we have all the papers there. So that's a handy resource. And this is inc- I'm looking at it right now. It's an incredible list. It's actually, uh, it's up to 198 papers. Is it up to 198? No kidding. It's at 198. Yeah, that's Mark's beautiful. been under the hood. And we try to get them out. Literally, if one's published, it'll be on the bib the next day. And then Martin Sweatman, uh, it does a video on at least 20 or 30 of them where he breaks down hmm. and takes the damn supposed refutations apart. Not only does he take them apart, he actually shows where most of the time they have a tell that that supports us, that they have so much trouble getting around the evidence that they have to admit something. And you're like, well, if you admit that, obviously something happened. But Martin does a good job with that. And then, uh, Martin's uh, been on our, on our podcast too. Everybody should go check that one out. I saw that. I hadn't listened. I was very impressed, man. And he's mostly talking about the go back. stuff though, but yeah. Yeah. God, we didn't even touch that. Don't forget that hunter gatherer stuff was absolute bullshit. Uh, (laughs) we're going to have to do it again, man. We're going to have to get you back here. I'll tell you that, that my, my good archaeology friend, Dr. Andrew M.T. Moore who came to the Cosmic Summit, 85 years old, right? He's the former, just two cycles ago, past president of the American Archaeological Institute, which is the largest association of professional archaeologists in the world. And he led a paper that said his signature site, which is well-acknowledged, ChatGPT gave him credit when I asked it one day, who discovered the earliest evidence of agriculture? It said, Dr. Andrew M.T. Moore at Tel Halabam in 1972 discovered the earliest evidence for agriculture, and it led him to be the one of the world's chief archaeologists. Well, the Younger Dryas team approached him and said, hey, could we look at some of your samples? Because it was a crisis dig, and they retained all the samples, probably got some warehouse somewhere, and said, can we test them? Test them, came up positive for the breath of hell, you know, had animal bones with melted glass on them and all this kind of stuff. And Moore said, he's one in his 80s, said, well, I'll be 50 years after my signature discovery. I've learned that it was the fire pit, the hearth, the black layer that I was digging in actually has microspherules that have to be melted at 3000 C. So these gentlemen are right. And then he let a paper point is that what he'll say about Gobekli Tepe. And I got, uh, it was so funny. I said, so. Gobekli Tepe is supposed to be hunter-gatherers, and they didn't have agriculture, but doesn't. He goes, stop right there. So he goes, he said, well, they'd be the fool, most foolish hunters and gatherers of all time. They were surrounded by farms. I proved it in 1973. And you go look at the, the dates, 
And yes, he found, I mean, that's part of the story of agriculture is that it started 13. He says that they were surrounded by farms, that there is no way. Maybe that was some center where they didn't leave the evidence behind, but there is absolute published evidence all around Mesopotamia of agriculture predating 11.6, which is when they said Gopekli Tepe. So how do they continue that? I, I don't know. And actually, we don't do a lot of farming in our cities either. If if you haven't noticed, so. there there you go, yeah. there you go. And then um, I found a weird spot there. You know, I went to Quebecly Tepe this April, and Malcolm Bendall directed me to go to this ridge adjacent to it. I said, "Well, why, man?" He says, "Well, there's an odd quarry there, mate." And I was like, "Really?" So I go on Google Earth with him and whatnot. He started sending me all over Jordan. And I said, hey, man, I can't go see all these odd quarries, but I will go see the one if I can. I'll try to get over this one near Quebecly Tepe. So we went over there. I got the our tour guide, uh, Ramazan, and a couple other brave souls. And we drove out there, hiked up this hill, got to the top of this quarry with Gobekli Tepe looking down directly at you, you know, just intimately connected with it. And is the weirdest quarry of all time, man. I mean, God knows it was had to be both habitation and a quarry. Hmm. And it's all dug from the top down. There are all these, and, and Malcolm says, I'm a quarryman, mate. He said, no one does that in a quarry. It has walls. It has steps. It has niches. All of this stuff. And then we found a whole bunch of Templar car- carvings on a wall with the Templar cross and whatnot. And I'm like, what the hell are the Knights Templar doing at Gobekli Tepe? Why? I didn't even know they, what were they? Uh, I thought they like went from Europe down to Jerusalem. So I'll look up first crusade. Nope. They made a detour, went directly to Edessa, which is Shenlurfa now, which is the big city of 2 million. Gobekli Tepe's right outside it. They went there, took that over, and then went to Jerusalem. Why? I don't know. Why did they go at least inscribe themselves on something that may have predated them vastly, but they seem to have recognized something interesting about the, the that location. Mm. And I'll send you all that stuff, but it's just clear as a bell, all these beautiful well, it's not as clear as I'd like, but beautiful, beautiful carvings of crosses in various configurations. And then the whole site is, and maybe y'all can put it in your more links. I've got a great little photo file and I'm in fact, this is kind of my own little passion and I can't get enough people interested in it, except Scott Walter, you know, the guy with American on earth and he's the speaker at the summit. And we're going to go over there and film it and stuff and show the Templar Gobekli Tepe combination that people aren't weirded out enough about this stuff. <laughs> there, there's That's some other awesome. levels to it. I'm sorry. We were getting towards closing. Now. I went on a totally different rant. No, I think I want to check it out. I mean, uh, yeah, I hope we can, I hope we can meet up again and talk about sure, this stuff. Man. After well, listen, I, I you all come to the to Cosmic Summit, got free tickets, accommodations, you know, uh, we'll have a table for you if you want. Well, that'd be fantastic. Um, when it, is that, by the way? It's just an offer. Everybody's got busy summers. And, and for listeners, you can find the Cosmic Summit. We have a brand new version three website that went up last night and we're rolling out tickets. It looks like, oh God, second or third week of December, we're going to open up the other sales. Right now, we've got uh, a limited batch of tickets that if you buy them now, 
you will be entitled to the VIP benefits that are going to come with private opportunities to meet with the speakers, uh, privileged seating. Uh, uh, we're going to have a giant disco party with a thousand people and you get in the special <laughs> place up top. It's this unbelievable facility. And point being, if you buy a ticket now, you're going to be a VIP at the thing, but that's not going to last too long. And so that's at CosmicSummit.com. And then my blog is Cosmic Tusk. And we have a Discord called the Cosmic Circle. And y'all have a Discord too, don't you? Mm-hmm. We do, yeah. I need to one. join that. And I'm, I'm going to contribute to your Patreon. I meant to do it before I came on, but I'm going to be a member of uh, Team Demystify. <laughs> and... <laughs> Well, yeah, yeah, yeah man, yeah. Shoot, send us these links. We'll definitely put them in the description. I, I yeah. don't know. I just feel like we've uh, we've made a friend in you, and and I feel like this is not the last time that. We'll oh, y'all are my science buddies. Time. Absolutely, man. This <laughs> is not goodbye. This is until next time. Yes, fantastic. Yes. I would love to make it out to the conference. I hope we can. Awesome. That'd be, that'd be really cool. Awesome. And good luck with your conference too. I'll be looking in on that. Where are you holding it? Austin. Austin. Yeah. In oh, April. Maybe yeah. I'll pop up at when April. April seventh and eighth of twenty twenty four. Yeah, right on the eclipse, basically. Hmm. So there's Maybe another get, reason. Uh, to go my buddies from Texas down there, the podcasters, the brothers of the serpent. Do y'all? I know tried them? to reach out to them. I'd love to get in touch with them if, if you uh, if you could put in a good word for us. I, don't, I didn't oh, hear that. Yeah. What? What do you want to interview them or just get to? Know yeah, them? I'd love to do a podcast with them. They've got a lot of rich content. Oh gosh, explore. yeah, no, I'll, I'll reach out to them. And by the way, if they're I in have Texas too, and they want to Temple's speak, email, yeah. I can get in touch with Robert. Man, that would God. be fantastic. Yeah. Any, if there's anything we can do for you too, I, I know we, uh, you know, if we can help in any way. Hey, that's what I mean, we're doing, man. We're knitting all this stuff together. We're just exactly. one little nodes, but you know, it's going to grow the cosmic and grow web. and grow. Exactly. Yeah. Enjoyed being on. Thank you very much. It was really great. Yeah, Thank you so much, George. It's really cool to meet you. Okay. All right, have a great rest of your day, man. Bye. Bye, everybody.